Today is August 8th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Nagana Go, Mekoche Chestokomaki. My name is Red Thunderwoman, or in Satudene, Dekots, Nekotine Siku. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed US Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley Chiniki, Bearspawn Nations of the Stony Nations, and the Dene from Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nation, Metis, Inuit, status and non-status cross Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with government signing on your behalf. Um, it's just really important to understand with pride coming up here in Calgary, that the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on these lands by Christian outsiders. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as the guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner in a so-called time of reconciliation. And with that, I want to introduce our guest, Jesse. I'm really grateful that you were willing to come to our book club today, Jesse. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I definitely open the floor to you. And I think I'm going to put you on the pin. And hopefully everybody sees you um, front and center. Well, well, thank you so much for that uh, lovely I'm introduction. Sure you but I do see that you're speaking and somehow our closed captioning is picking it up. Can everyone else hear me? I'm the only person having audio. I'll check mine. Please go ahead. Okay, well, thank you for the lovely introduction. I'm very happy to, uh, to be here and always like, you know, nice to meet people who've read the book and I'm happy to, uh, hear what everyone uh, is thinking. So uh, thank you for having me. Hopefully Michelle will resolve her technical issues. When I um, secret about the CBC, if you let dead air go too long on CBC radio, there's this, uh, it used to be a tape when I was there. I'm sure it's now just a, a computer uh, program, but there's this tape that is triggered to go off because there's like, uh, you can't have, I think it's like 10 seconds or 20 seconds of dead air. And then it triggers this thing and this taped broadcast, which is just, you're listening to the CBC sort of thing. And so you always, when I was starting out, they warned you about this. They would take you to the radio master control to show you this machine that was going to go off if you dared let 20 seconds of dead air go out. But then I remember that um, they also told the story that Michael Snow, the famous uh, Canadian artist, had done a radio piece that was like minutes long dead air earlier that had made this thing go crazy. So there was all these uh, horror stories about uh, when people intentionally wanted dead air, you had to call master control to say it was, anyway, uh, in, in Zoom the, with this technology, it's a whole new, whole new world. Hopefully Michelle is, is back up and running. I'm okay. back, I can hear you. Hooray. Okay. I, I can see Cynthia wants to speak first. So I'm assuming she heard us say that indigenous people speak first. So I'm going to assume that and let her speak to you first. Um, 
I am non-Indigenous, but I feel like I have a lot of, um, I would say good points in my opinion, my humble but informed opinion. Uh, your book is really well titled, like uh, Unreconciled. I-, I believe that the the actual title of the book is Unreconciled, but the hidden title, the one that you didn't do as the subtitle should be Let's Decolonize, because uh, when you look at it, he was arguing that we shouldn't reconcile because there's nothing to reconcile. What he was trying to suggest is there was there needs to be an attempt to decolonize, not to reconcile. And I think you stressed that a lot in the last chapter, unreconciled in the sense that you questioned like the relationship. You said it wasn't like you said that the relationship wasn't always perfect to begin with because it was a colonial relationship and you're suggesting that we have to decolonize out of that colonial relationship and build a new anti-colonial relationship well thank you so much for reading the book i appreciate that uh very much um i think that's about it although i mean i don't know if i would use the word decolonize uh it's a word that's used a lot sometimes i think it's appropriate a lot of the time yeah because i think the struggle is of course that colonial systems colonialism isn't really in it doesn't really have it built into it the ability to undo itself it, mm. it, it sort of um it requires this sort of because colonialism is ultimately a tool of capitalism and capitalism, the way it has been set up, requires constant growth. That's why they needed colonialism, was that to, in order to expand, they needed to conquer other lands. Um, so I, I find it hard to imagine that these states will decolonize. I, so you're, you're right. It's just maybe not the language precisely that I would use. Uh, and the last chapter was the easiest one to write. Um, to be honest, it's like where I got to, you know, um, I tried to find a balance of tone in the book and in the last chapter, and I remember saying this to my editor, even as I was uh, writing it and my agents just saying, yeah, the last, the sort of scorched earth comes in the last uh, chapter. It's still, I think, hopeful, but it's a pretty blunt, um, sort of assessment, I think. Of it, and the assessment is that like Canada as a thing um, was never really constituted in a way to make it succeed, and it meaning that like the way for Canada to exist legitimately is for the First Nations people, Inuit, Métis people to go sure, let's uh, we can do that, um, which is not which amazingly even after all these many years is would probably still be a possibility, amazingly, that Indigenous people wouldn't say no to that proposition. We'd probably figure out how to make it work. Because again, that's what my great-grandparents actually believed in, was that there was this way to make this work, that the, the abundance of this place could sustain everyone, and that they, you know, if you look at the treaty that their community signed, and the, you know, just from what I know of them, you know, the idea that one community, that somehow there would be dominion or that we were giving up the, you know, sovereignty was not what, that is not what they believed in terms of what was occurring. They sort of believed people had shown up, 
their way of life was changing for sure. My great grandparents absolutely believe that, that like their way of life was forever going to change, but they saw great possibility. It, you know, I would say their families learned to, um, has some anger over how that all worked out for uh, everyone. Um, but I think they entered it in sort of good faith. Um, it was, it just didn't work out that way. So yeah, I think there's a way to reconstitute and that I literally think that's the right word because you need a new constitution uh, to reconstitute Canada um, in a way that would be legitimate, that would require a fundamental shift in the relationship between the state and certainly our communities. Like if we talk about nation to nation, we really get down to that and and it would require because again you know if we had had that would canada have made all the decisions it has made over the last and if, the answer of course is no of course not it wouldn't have made all may, may have made some of them but i don't know if it would have made all of them and i can't help but in my imagination or my dreams sometimes imagine what that could look like because again i think one of the things with indigenous people is like this is it this is our homelands i don't i have nowhere else to go i can't imagine another paradise this is it this is uh, it, and it's totally enough for me uh as someone who can go you know i was on manitoulin just a few weeks ago and like yeah it's enough like that's the anishinaabe uh uh, that's the, the big unceded territory in Anish, the Anishinaabe territory is Manitoulin Island, and it's wonderful. Everyone should, well, actually, set that. People should know that it exists, is maybe how I would put that. I don't know if I want to go there, but you should know that it's fabulous and that it's a lovely place. Uh, but uh, so, yeah, I just think that we, and that we, uh, I just wanted to push Canadians um, and probably non Indigenous Canadians. Uh, you know, not that Indigenous people are Canadian to begin with, but, you know, uh, non, you know, Canadians to sort of dream that way and imagine what that might actually be and, and sort of get over the fear that it would mean some radical shift in your life, because I honestly don't think it really would, uh, like too much. It might just mean that there's some, you know, some things work a bit differently, um, and I also think we shouldn't be daunted by it. That, um, that, you know, one of the interesting things about how colonial states teach their own history, is, and I think it's very intentional when I think about it, is they sort of teach the, the people who found their nations, they sort of treat them like gods. Like in the States, they literally like uh, cut mountains with them and stuff like that you know they have real they have giant phallic symbols in honor of them in their uh, state capital um here we don't we sort of don't but we still treat them like they were not human somehow like they're not um and so that we and then we treat their output like the things they did as somehow sacrosanct like we can't these are immutable these these the like these things and i don't think they're just not they're just not immutable. They're not, um, I don't know. I've been in the, the territory where Michelle calls home uh, right now. Like you go stare at a mountain, that's immutable. Like that's a, that's a thing that you like is, that's a thing. That's realness in a way that a lot of this stuff is not. And um, so, yeah, I just think we can, 
those folks weren't so great that we can't redo some of their work if we've decided that it's not working out. And I think our communities have sort of decided it's not really working out that great for us. So why not? Why would that? Why is that so daunting and so hard? And um, the sort of the cherry that I would put on top for Canada is, you know, Canada, it seems to me as a nation has always really wanted to be thought well of globally. Like it, and it always wants to be like um, cool and nice and good and a leader in a way that is tough for us, for a, you know, a vast nation, but a very small population. Uh, it's tough, right? And like, this would be one, a thing that it could do that would be like historic in all of the world because no one else has ever done it. Like you, if you were to say, you know, maybe we should reconstitute and reorganize ourselves to acknowledge that like colonialism, the doctrine of discovery, this is why everyone wants the Pope to get, like to, because we want to repudiate the very bedrock of what made all of this happen. And just admit that maybe it could have worked out different. And can we just maybe reset now? That's a very long answer to, I suspect what was a very sort of short question, but that was the, um, I think you nailed what I was going for, which is that like maybe reconciliation isn't the goal. And maybe it's actually not possible for these nations to reconcile in that way. So if that's not possible, how can we get to a better place? And it's in reconstitution or that sort of idea of like, let's let's do something different and not be that af afraid of it. And um, again, from the Anishinaabe perspective, you know, we have prophecy that sort of tells us, um, uh, well, sort of tells us how this all sort of goes. Um, it is, I, I am surprised at the accuracy so far. Uh, so it's also something where we know that, you know, we will govern the lands again, like we will steward the lands again at some point. So we also have to like prepare ourselves for that that eventuality, because I I do also think we're watching, uh, you know, colonialism is having a pretty tough time at the current moment in terms of its um, outlook, uh, uh, which is a problem when you build a system that isn't sustainable. But now we're getting into other stuff and I wanna leave uh, questions for other folks. And as you can tell, I'm uh, verbose. <laughs> well, thank you, Jesse, for that. Um, I have so much I want to say to you as well. I'm super excited to, but Susan has her hands up and I know she's Métis. And I, I'm just going to remind everybody, the reason why um, Indigenous speak first is because frankly, you've had over 150 years. So as well-meaning as your questions may be, I just ask that uh, you allow Indigenous to speak first. And Susan, please go ahead. And if you need me to pause it, I have no problem doing so. Oh, did she freeze on us, maybe? Yeah. I want to the book. Our community. Oh, no. 
Oh no, she she dropped. Yeah, I think she bounced in and out. I even stopped my video hoping it wasn't uh, just that. But when she comes back in, I'll admit her right away. And I heard her talk about your humor. And yes, that was like so prevalent throughout the entire uh, one. She's back. Oh, perfect. Okay. Let her go here. I don't, I don't see her oh, no. explain that her quite family yet. my ancestor. Darn it. Kathy Bear, uh, do you want to um, pop in at all or should I go on about with my review? Um, sure, I, I, I can talk, but it sounds like Wendy's trying to talk. Okay, I'm going to um, change the view so I can maybe uh, pause everybody or mute folks that are not speaking so that that way we can get, uh, it looks like everybody's muted. So the only people that's not muted, even Jesse's muted. Um, so if, if Susan turns her camera off, her signal will be better. Agreed, but I don't think she's, oh, like I, I don't know if that's going to help her right now. So. Maybe when Susan gets that kind of sorted out, I'll just pass it over to Kathy for now so that we, we don't There's waste Susan. time. Oh, maybe not. Yeah, she's here, Kat. I, everyone, we all agree she's here, but she's cutting in and out. So yeah. I, I would really just like Kathy Bear to be given the floor for now. And hopefully Susan's uh, connection will come back sooner. Thanks, folks. Okay. Hi, I'm Kathy Bear. I'm from Muscaday Cree First Nations. Um, I just want finished your book. I started it yesterday. Um, it's very good. I really enjoyed it. There's lots of good information there. And, and a lot of it really resonated with me. Um, when you talk about not feeling um, good enough or Indigenous enough, that really resonated a lot with me. Um, also, I get nervous when, when there's a celebrity in the house. <laughs> uh, so do I. When does one show up? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, the part where you talk about knowing I'm the exact type of Indian that residential schools were designed to produce and that I'm considered tolerable by a system bent on eradicating Indigenous existence is an uncomfortable, even painful thing to live with. It's not an identity I aspire to. It's been imposed and imposed in a way meant to seduce, numb, and coerce me into playing along, into fully embodying the image of an Indigenous person in which I've been cast. I've had to deal with that imposition a lot in my life, and my first step in managing it has always been to ask myself a simple question. Are you, are you going to actually be the acceptable one, or are you going to raise hell and find a way to weaponize your privilege against the very place that's given it to you. That really resonated with me because, you know, I, I was taken away from my mother. I was raised by a German father. Um, and even though he was like really old, he, he was born in 1911. So like, how in the world would they take, take me away from my mom and, and give me to this old man to be raised because he's white? It, it just, I've been very conditioned to be 
acceptable, like, you know, to be the only Indigenous person in, in elementary school, to, um, to just being called squaw, like, you know, like when, when, when you get in a fight in a playground to be called squaw, to, to one time walk into school in, in elementary school, well, I don't want to go there. That's, that's a, just, you know, even in elementary school, the two boys tried to rape me. They, they lured me into a garage. They, and they, they were going to molest me in there. Like that's in elementary school. That's how prevalent this kind of conditioning is, you know, it just, and you push all of this down and bury it inside of you um, because of all the, the trauma and the beatdowns that you take throughout your life that, uh, that really resonated with me because I've always spent so much time trying to be accepted, um, trying to pass, not pass as white, but just to be accepted. And, and no matter what you do, you don't. So, you know, now that I'm getting close to 60, I'm at the point where I'm like, I don't give a fuck what people think about me. I'm going to be me. I'm going to say what I want to say. You know, what more can they do to me that already hasn't been done, right? Mm. So that really resonated with me. Um, and then again, in relating to that, when you go to the last chapter, and, um, you, and it starts with uh, two generations. I forget. Mm. Um, all that effort Canada put into forcing my family's estrangement from our land, divorcing, divorcing us from our community, all that money and violence. And that all it got them was two generations, my mother and me, that's it. All the work to drive my grandmother away, to brutalize her into a life in the city and get her great, and yet her great granddaughter wants to move back to the res. Like that was, that was very nice. I, I found that really hopeful and kind of empowering. But um, I find, like my, for myself, I recently found out about an auntie that never made it home from residential school. So over the past four or five months now, I've been thinking a lot about what my grandmother went through. And, um, and I'm, I just hope that on my res, uh, I have a cousin here. They're 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 on their way home from from my res in northern Saskatchewan to Vancouver. So they're stopping for the night. They're just coming back from the powwow, and I just found out tonight that we're considered the white res because we have so little culture left on my res. Mm. Um, I find that really sad. But I'd already kind of noticed that because when I was there uh, for a funeral not that long ago, I asked, how many elders do we have left? And I was told at that time we had one left. And I've never heard of any, besides the powwow, I, I haven't heard of any like sweats happening on my res or anything like that. So I just hope that maybe we can start like, how do you go about borrowing culture? <laughs> like, how do you relearn your culture? You know, that's, that's a hard thing, right? Do you just borrow it from your, your neighboring people or <laughs> what? Um, but um, there was one more thing in here. When you, I had one of the what the fuck moments when I was reading your book. It was like when you were talking about the, uh, the appropriation prize, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that because like that was just in 2017 and, and I, it totally just went like 
right over my head. I never heard a thing about it. So I'm just hoping you could take a few minutes and talk about that. Thanks. Sure. But first of all, Kathy, thank you so much for sharing and all of your thoughts. That's, uh, yeah, that's very uh, powerful. And I really uh, appreciate that. And I'm so sorry for everything that you've, you've been through. I mean, on the, I guess I would say about the not feeling Ojibwe enough or I guess, you know, even since the book, my, my thinking on this has sort of moved a bit, which is like, you know, that's a very intentional outcome of colonialism, like that they wanted us to feel that way, right? Just like they also wanted to empower people who aren't from our communities to feel like they could be part of our communities, right? All of that is sort of part of the same sort of circle. Uh, and none of it is fun for anyone really involved. Um, and, you know, thanks to, um, you know, a lot of therapy, uh, a lot of discussions with elders and all sorts of things, I've really grown in my acceptance of myself in terms of, you know, when I think of the title of the book, it's both about the country, but it was also very much about me in terms of understanding what it does mean to be an Anishinaabe guy who has, uh, you know, white, uh, white dad, a huge part of the white family, but um, grew up in the city, but also grew up very, you know, per, very connected to my community. We always knew who we were. And, um, you know, I haven't had, unlike some of my cousins or whatever, like, as you can probably see, I haven't really benefited from being able to pass as white uh, for very often in my life. Like, I mean, I talk about in the book how the kids, just like you, told me right away that they, they knew all about me uh, uh, right away. So like, um, and but it's something an elder told me was really powerful. Um, he just said, you know, you are Anishinaabe. You can't help it. Uh, everything you do is the honest, like, that's how an Anishinaabe would do it, because that's who you are. Do not, you are wrapped up, even the idea that you're wrapped up in questioning that is just being wrapped up in what colonialism wants us to do. And he's like, what you actually have to do is just accept that that's who you are, because that's how we understand you. That's how your community sees you. That is you. Don't worry about anyone else in your family. You are you, and that's who you are, and um, he's, and, you know, he always reminded me, your community knows who you are, and even for those that are lost or have been, were taken, the communities still know in a lot of cases, like there's, there is memory there in terms of understanding how all of this worked. So we are enough, what we do is enough. We're all, we are making our ancestors proud as we go through all of this. Um, the story with my daughter was, you know, what a benefit uh, being an incredibly slow author turned out to be. Um, you know, I was, th this book took four years for me to write. It was supposed to take a year. Uh, in between, I did start uh, sort of a whole not-for-profit and do some other stuff that uh, delayed the uh, writing that I do talk a bit about in the book. But, you know, that experience with her going back, that wouldn't have happened if I had finished the book on time, quote-unquote. Um, which was also a good teaching, which is that like um, the whole concept of on time is is different for us and uh, to be more accepting, which I do understand. But sometimes when you've got agents and other people, they're a little they have a different version of on time. And um, but I would say the book arrived right when it 
should have. And part of it was to get some of those those uh, stories. And she still feels that way. <laughs> like all these years later, that was 2019, I think that happened. Like it's 2022 and she like this week, she's like, why do we live in the city? And my answer is, I don't know, like talk to your mom, which I don't mean to put on my, my wife, but you know, I've grown weary of the city as well. The appropriation prize, I mean, I don't want to go into the whole backstory uh, of it. Uh, it was a nasty little thing in Canadian publishing world where the, the writers, the writers trust, which is like the union of writers, had a publication that was dedicated to indigenous writers, but the non-indigenous editor wrote an editorial about how like cultural appropriation isn't real and like, wouldn't it be great if we just all, uh, we should have an appropriation prize for the writer of who writes best in the body of another culture. And um, uh, it's blew up, all the authors were very upset. Uh, and then of course, overnight, a bunch of publishers in Canada, like they, all the major gatekeepers tweeted uh, on the app that no one should use because it's nothing but a disaster. Uh, uh, tweeted out, because again, these people, if they hadn't had Twitter, they could have just thought these things in their brains and not uh, done whatever they did. It was, it was not a good career move for many of them, but a lot of them said, yes, I would contribute to the founding of an appropriation prize. And then I, at the time I was more engaged in Twitter. And so I tweeted back, I think something like, um, there already is an appropriation prize, it's called Canada, which is sort of how I sort of feel about it. And um, anyway, there was a whole brouhaha. I appeared on a, a TV show to debate a guy, it didn't go well for him. Appeared on another radio show where I got emotional and then a bunch of people watched it. And then uh, everyone, it seems every publisher in the country decided I should suddenly write a book. And now we're at a book club meeting. So that is, if you want the trajectory of my involvement with the appropriation prize, that's sort of it. It, I think more importantly for me though, um, it got me to think about the issue and to start talking a bit about it from our perspective, which is to talk about narrative sovereignty as opposed to cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation, I find very boring and um, it's not our thing uh, really. Uh, in terms, like I don't, Anishinaabe weren't really known for it. Maybe I, you know, I don't want to speak for all First Nations, but um, so, but narrative sovereignty would be our thing in terms of like we're sovereign people and we we think that's how this would work. And so, <laughs> it just allowed me to talk from it, which has been very useful advocacy to think about it that way. Um, you know, the Indigenous Screen Office, like so much. And I don't want to say because of that, but it's helped me uh, in that work um, to frame it that way and to not have to feel like I have to talk about colonial ideas all the time. I can talk about our ideas in the context and move their needle, move their thinking in terms of what we're actually talking about. Because when you say narrative sovereignty, uh, especially to ministers from Quebec, it hits a bit differently than uh, than talking about what we well we don't want cultural appropriation because a you're talking about something we do want so a positive outcome and the words are different and I know that sounds silly but in a lot of advocacy work the precise words are meaningful because it's that's the difference between a politician going oh I can use that or no I don't want to talk about that and so it's been very 
useful and and um it's certainly not i wouldn't claim ownership of the concept or anything like that i it's just how i how i ended up um framing it so so to me it's one of those things it was it, and this all happened during 2017 important because it was the sesquicentennial year which if you were first nations or metis or inuit during 2017 not a highlight uh, not a not except we did ruin the party i will say that was good <laughs> we successfully thumbs up on that one everyone did not have a lot of fun that year but um i don't think we're sort of fun people so it's a bit of a drag that that's how it had to work out because but and and i and i do think it's beneficial that canada days ever since are a bit more fraught for this place because they probably should be a bit fraught in terms of like you know is it you know you know just you know like i mean uh, i get there we're still a country that's been like fireworks for a, like a queen that's been you know whatever but um but i i don't know about celebrating canada day i just think there's other ways that we could uh think about those things i'm all for the day off i you know uh, we all we they should we all need that but um yeah so uh, uh that's really the appropriation prize story at least from my vantage point sadly uh some of the people that i encountered uh during that still hold a grudge apparently uh the, one of them uh, recently wrote something uh, quite horrible about me and uh uh whatnot um but I, it was quite amusing they seemed they it turns out that it seems they've discovered that i have a book these people which i'm i, I don't know how they uh you know missed it it was a bestseller and everything and um but um they read it and it turned and and they it's a an inter very interesting experience to hear people read the things you wrote as if it's a gotcha like uh because the big one yeah exactly like exactly michelle because it was all about how i'm like three quarters white which is just a bizarre like my ask would be like can you point to the three quarters because i'm <laughs> you want to come up to my community and have all the men gather together because you're gonna not gonna go well on that one on the three quarters but um like so i don't know what leg or arm they're talking about necessarily but it's also like but that's what i wrote like that's i wrote that in the book like you can't get me on something i wrote and like then they write oh he's privileged and i'm like yeah there's like there's like a whole chapter on that shit in the book like i write about the privilege its relationship to whiteness so anyway all this to also just say um uh I, I don't even they used to be like don't feed the trolls i don't even think you should uh bother, like even uh i don't know what these people are up to with their time i don't i don't uh i'm i i i who has the time or energy with what's going on in the world to do like this woman wrote a whole like thousand fifteen hundred word essay about like it's like my goodness i uh anyway so um that was the appropriation prize uh, story. I, it's it's um, it's a sort of weird and ugly moment, I would say, for yeah. them. But a learning. It was a teachable moment, as it turns out, for the country because we don't. I think cultural appropriation is something a lot of the most institutions you are now deeply aware of after that conversation, and sort of comically desperate not to be accused of. Um, 
even though I think there's a big misunderstanding of what it actually is uh, in, in Canada, because I think, and frankly, our community labels a lot of stuff, cultural appropriation that isn't like, like I'll just use a very simple one, sports mascots. Yeah, not cultural appropriation. Uh, we did not have sports teams. We did not have mascots for the non-existent sports teams that we didn't have uh, in that way. It doesn't mean we didn't have athletics. Of course we did, but not in a way that would require a foam-headed person to, uh, to run up and down the sidelines of whatever we were doing. So it's like, no, that's not actually, that's just gross racism is uh, what that is. Like, that's not culture, that's just gross. And then the other one, I love this interaction. The CBC called me, it was like a year ago. And they're like, oh, we have to have you on. There's a big cultural appropriation thing and you're the expert, and which is just not, not a way to lead a successful booking call with me is to say you're the expert on culture. No, I will. You are not. That booking is not happening if you open that that way up. But then they were like, um, a, a, a non-Indigenous T-shirt company has stolen the T-shirt design of an Indigenous person, and we think it's cultural appropriation. And I was like, uh, that seems like IP theft. Uh, I don't. I don't remember the long tradition of t-shirt making that we're talking about here exactly. Like maybe if there's a symbol or something, but to me, this is a, like, and I said to the guy, you should just book an IP lawyer. Like there's indigenous IP lawyers who will happily come on and say, you shouldn't do this. And it's like, we'll sue you and all of that stuff. I'm not an IP lawyer. I'm not like, so that isn't cultural appropriation either. To me, the best example, if people truly want to understand cultural appropriation, I could go the potlatch fan route, I won't. I'll go a much more simpler route, the dream catcher. You've seen them at the Dollarama, made in China, the thing everyone hangs in their car for reasons I'm, I, I, as an Anishinaabe, it comes from our nation. No idea, it's not how it works. It means you're sleeping in your car. Maybe you are, it's very whatever, do you. Not sure, and by the way, not gonna work if you bought them at the Dollarama. Like these are actually like things that do a thing that actually works if you use it properly. Dollarama, not gonna happen. So like there you have a very specific cultural item from a nation, right? That actually has a pretty specific cultural meaning and practice and a whole like protocol and ceremony around it, right? Like when they, when they come out of use, you burn them. Like there's a whole thing, I don't need to go into it, but there's a whole thing that we, around dream catchers. And typically, the person should make should know you who makes it for you because it will work better like you can get them where they don't i don't want to say that but typically they should make it for you like the one i have in our room was made for me unbelievable um but there you have a thing that has turned into this cultural like product that our nation benefits zero from uh, it's been stripped of all of its actual context. So no one who, like the vast majority, 99% of the people who have one in their car, no idea about what it means, what you're supposed to do with it, how you clean it, upkeep, nothing. Um, it wasn't made by us, so we benefit no financially. Culturally, we don't benefit. It's a race like that. There you go. Like that's what we're talking about. And there's tons of it. The canoe. Uh, you know, sunglasses, like there's tons of stuff that our folks were doing that are now not our, in, that would have been like in the, in a, um, if we actually had ever had a free market capital system, like 
we, the Anishinaabe Nation would be rich from dream catchers. Uh, it would, uh, the, the, the uh, Inuit, like the kayak, would they be lousy with the kayak, you know, the money, the kayak uh, uh, design, the uh, patent, the patent they would have gotten on the kayak. Uh, you know what I mean? But we didn't. So we're locked out of it. And I think that's um, uh, that, that enriching yourself from others' cultural property without permission, without reciprocity, without, that's appropriation. And Canada, as I said in my the radio piece, is literally built on it. Like, and not just cultural, physical, our bodies, the land, our, our lives. Canada appropriated all of it in order to serve itself. And so the fact that cultural appropriation, you know, we, we, the, the idea that we even debate that it's a thing is laughable. It's like, what are we talking about? Of course, this is what's occurred, you know, right across this, um, these lands. And, uh, you know, it's, and I really, I, I come back to Kathy's comment, you know, how do you recover a culture? This is where we've been left, right? Where we have to ponder these very difficult difficult questions. I don't have the answer. I mean, my community's lucky. We have, still have elders. The powwow came back, uh, what, like 30 years ago, which you think about it, like it only came back 30 years ago, right? Like you think it's, that's a long time. It isn't. I was a teenager when the community started doing powwows again for the first time. Um, uh, so they have a language camp, like they, they're, they've still got like they're, they're, it's still there in the community, even though it's such a small place, like 350 people in Abijing, but they 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 still have that and they're they're taking care of it. But so many don't, and it's just, you know, hopefully Kathy or community can find a way. And uh, I think there will be. I I am very positive that we will get it all back in terms of one way or another. <laughs> we will get it all back, and. Um, I probably won't live to see it, but but I, I you know, I, I uh, it helps me sleep that I do believe that that's what will uh, occur because again, we persevered through all of this. That's there's there's a there's something to that that we're, that's there's a reason why this hasn't been easy. So if we're here, that means we there's something left for us to get up to. Thank you, thank you so much. That's awesome. Boy, I better shorten these uh, answers. This is going crazy. No, you don't. That you're you're allowed to speak. You've had 150 years of silence. Your ancestors saying, "Yeah, I'm not that old. I don't have that much." <laughs> Easy. Now. Uh, Susan, do you want to give it one more go? Maybe what we'll do is ask everybody to turn off their uh, cameras and see if that can help yeah, yeah. Susan be able to uh, have a conversation here. No. Sound like in here. Maybe write the question in chat. Would that work? Can you hear? No, we can't hear you. I'm sorry, oh, Susan. So I'm sorry. Cutting in and out. I'm so sorry. Um, Wanted to give that a go. This is why we need 
to have internet service treated like a utility. Yeah. So that uh, we would have high speed access or you stable know high speed access. It's so hard, Jesse, because you know I'm a liberal and we actually passed this policy and yet here we are still. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, ugh, it's so much harder when, when you, you know, and, and this is too why Indigenous people speak first is just to try to give that space because it's so hard. Um, that's a good suggestion, Carrie. Yeah, uh, Susan, um, can you try calling in? On the phone. I'll accept your, uh, well, no, it's you. Let's put it that way. In the meantime, Jesse, so that concept of narrative sovereignty that you really spoke about, like I have been afraid to do book reviews. I encourage the non-Indigenous to do the book re reviews always because I'm sure you've seen all the racists that like all the Ks that get out there and write all these racist book reviews, right? So I always ask this group that every time that they like a book that they write a good review. And, um, and I also encourage people who just don't like a book just to not write the review because Indigenous people don't need negativity, right? Um, <clears throat> and I follow a lot of authors and they all want to know if you really like their book. So I, I always feel really embarrassed to how to talk about it. So like I, I wrote a review for you for the first time and I'm like, because we, I just felt like we had so much in common. So for all the folks that are here and maybe missed it, I'll just quickly say it. Um, to my guest, Jesse, I've never prepared a speech for a guest like this one. Your words in your book, Unreconciled, actually gave me permission to say a book review. I've always suffered from imposter syndrome. As an adult, I've learned to challenge that thinking, recognizing childhood trauma as the root of that insecurity. And I know it's not true, but there are times it's a full-time job challenging that negative self-talk, especially when triggered. Uh, with the deepest respect to all my past authors, Jesse's book was the first one that I personally resonated with in a long time. Much of it is because we're close in age. So when I was reading his thoughts on Star Wars, I made my daughter and my husband stop what they were doing to read out loud his words as validation to my endless points on Star Wars. <laughs> out of all of the things I could have said, I focused on the Star Wars, but I encouraged them all to read this book as I do all non-Indigenous. Um, when I was asked by a Catholic public school in Lacombe to speak, I placed myself back in the grade in Sylvan Lake, not too far from Lacombe, to think of all of the racism and sexism that I had experienced. And Oka was the instant pain in that gut that I thought of and wrote a message as if there was a um, one or two half-breed, full-breeds in that class that might have that feeling of all eyes on them for being the one Indigenous kid expected to put up with all their school's ignorance while still trying to deal with all the hormones and experiences that any other preteen or teen goes through. No one likes being singled out negatively. And because I'm an adult uh, that is beginning to understand racism, intersectionality, you know, I try to include new immigrants in the LGBTQ2 plus community, but likely miss things like disability. Again, I'm committed to work harder on all intersections despite my straight uh, cis and ableist biases. Uh, Jesse's description of Oka made me feel like his and my Indigenous generation that nationally went through those times had that commonality without taking away how awful it was for the actual Indigenous folks at Oka. Uh, even when I said it to the Lacombe kids, I felt like an imposter because I wasn't at Oka 
that wasn't my community, but that racism I felt that others did too. And it wasn't okay then, it's not okay today, but I needed to read that and validate it um, because I bet many Indigenous kids, preteens, pre teens, and young adults are likely feeling that today in a time of so-called truth and reconciliation, that all eyes are still on them and how hard it is to go through this without understanding, help, or worse, denialism like the K's and their, you know, appropriation prize. Um, there's a conservative movement here in Calgary that is purposely trying to do Indian residential school denial. Anyway, um, I want those younger than I to know that this is an experience we all go through as Indigenous people that is completely unfair, unjust, and uncompensated for. This book helps articulate all of this. I believe all Indigenous peoples across so-called Canada should read this book. Of course, non-Indigenous should too. It helps validate Indigenous experiences. So I hope you see your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, parents, and communities struggle figuring out our identity, relationship to Canada, the healing we all have to go through, and it's unfiltered. I cried and I laughed at times and found this book so healing. Um, my hope is you all do too. It's loving, respectful, funny, compassionate, and full of the integrity that I see all around me in the Indigenous communities that I know and love. Even this book gives me permission to write, speak, or podcast in my way. I would love to tell you all Indigenous that your words and way of being is more than enough. And yet for myself, I'm my worst own uh, colonizer enemy. But this book is another tool in my toolbox to release some of that self-doubt. And I hope it is for you too. So I, I, I wanted to say that to you because, um, you know, you, you as Kathy Bear had said as well, like you just spoke so well about that imposter syndrome. And then towards the end, when you got so many people messaging you saying, oh, thank you for your words. I've had that once in a while as well on an article or two that I was lucky enough to be in. But, um, you know, it, it's hard because like the algorithms are set against us, the unconscious bias, the conscious bias in some cases, just the outright hate and racism. So I just, I loved your book from start to finish. I pray that my daughter will read it. And um, I see Susan nodding along. So maybe even before I try to um, turn it over to you, Jesse, Susan, do you wanna give it a go and just unmute yourself? I have to. She, she typed in the chat. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, perfect. At least I see her nodding along. So her, her uh, internet is good. I don't know how to call in, but I can hear you all. Love the visit to Spirit River. I was just up in northern Saskatchewan at Montreal Lake at Cousins Fishing Camp. Uh, such a wonderful connection to land and family. As a ward of the state, then adopted to a white family. I left when I graduated grade 12. Uh, it took 40 years to reconnect, fighting social workers, government, before my birth mother and I reunited. Since then, my Métis family are my foundation. Fortunately, as a child, I went to powwows, talked to elders. I knew I was Métis since the age of six. Thank you for speaking to our indigeneity and our own spirit inherent. It's beautiful, Wendy. Thank you. Or Susan for sharing that. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan, for that. That's just a lovely. And thank you, Michelle, for that um, really powerful and uh, very, you know, that, that, that gets me, you know, so thank you very much for those. 
those kind words. I hope my daughter reads it too. My son reads it too. They, they, you know, uh, they haven't, <laughs> they have, <laughs> you know, they're teenagers. They, uh, you know, they have no interest, but um, uh, because I wrote it for them, you know, the, it, it, when, when uh, in terms of the, cause you're often asked as, as an artist. I and mean, I remember the times when I used to be the person asking artists, it's like, who's your audience? And in terms of who I was thinking about, it was my kids. Um, Cause at the time, that I was writing the book, there was a lot going on. Like this was late 2017, 2018, when I started to, to do it. I'd been offered to write a book many times and had never thought I had anything to say that was worthy of a, of a book. And, um, and then really the, you know, one of the thing with the appropriation prizes that sort of said, I think maybe I do have something to say and maybe I, I can do it this way. It was also, um, to be honest, you know, the, the time was difficult, you know, the last, uh, it's getting, it's gotten much better, I would say in the last little bit, but you know, the last, there's been some challenges. And at the time I was getting, you know, uh, a lot of death threats and, um, and I was not very healthy uh, as one tends to be when you get a lot of uh, death threats. And, um, and there was a, you know, to be honest, I, there was in my mind that um, I may not live long enough to actually have these conversations with my children. And so, and I wanted to, I wanted them to know as best as I could why I did some of the things I did and why I, because, you know, the, one of the things when you, when you, um, make the choices I have made uh, professionally and whatever is like, and my kids feel this a bit now, which is like your family catches a bit of the uh, shrapnel in terms of the, you know, the blowback. And so, you know, as I've said to them, like, and I don't use their names a lot uh, on social media or anything like that. And it's just to protect them a little bit because they have the last name. They're sort of, um, you know, as I said, once you're 18, if you want to get rid of it, you're certainly welcome to. But, um, you know, for the moment, they have to live with the with it. And, um, and, you know, for better or worse, yeah, I figured if I wasn't going to be get to the, an age where I could have these conversations, I wanted them to understand who their father was, was and who he was trying, why he did the things he did and why he would either put himself in danger or make himself unhealthy in a way that meant that that would sort of go away. Luckily, you know, I've, over the years, I've come to learn that like, you know, most people who threaten your life, the 99.9% .9 of them not going to uh, do anything. Uh, so you can sort of live, uh, you know, as I've, you know, Hey, I've even met Salman Rushdie. So I know that this is a possible, uh, you know, that it doesn't happen. So, I feel much safer these days, but at the time that was certainly part of the impetus. So I heard, I hope they read it. Um, it's again, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't writing it for a teenage audience at all, uh, but was writing it for two teenagers uh, in terms of this might be something that would, um, yeah, they might, although it's interesting, they get a little more exposure these days to what uh, their dad does because they've been to a couple events where they've seen me speak. My daughter is actually traveling with me this week to the Sunshine Coast 
to a uh, author's festival there. It's her first time, um, well, it's gonna be a first time for a lot of things for her. First time in BC at West, first time doing that. I think she's mostly excited to first time business class, but that's, you know, teenage. <laughs> By the way, Jesse, that's one of my favorite places on earth. Before I experienced racism in the healthcare system, my husband and I used to waste all our money going scuba diving on the West Coast. And uh, I was a sea cadet. And at that time, before Jean Chrétien cuts, they would just ship this little girl from Sylvan Lake out to the West Coast so I could go swim around in the ocean. It's one of my favorite places on earth. So I had to talk to you guys. I'm happy for you. I, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I've never been to this particular part of the coast. I've been, you know, all over the place, but not. But, so I'm certainly interested. I wish we weren't doing quite as quick, you know, because I scheduled it like I do my business trip. So it's like fly in, do the thing, fly out. So we're not we don't get to spend as much leisure time as I would uh, perhaps want. But it'll be, you know. She wants to be an artist herself that, you know, she is an artist, so she wants to be a professional artist, whatever that means, uh, says the chair of the Canada Council for the Arts, but um, uh, wants to be a professional artist. And so, like, I do also want her to see, like, a little bit, like, this is it, like, this is, um, <laughs> you know, you fly into a place, you do the show, you fly out, like, that's, that's a lot of what this can be for a lot of... Uh, artists in my particular practice public speaking while well, that is what you do you, you you fly in you fly back and you do you know a bunch of dates a year so um she'll get a she'll get a bit of a a taste and, and in another way i'm also my next book is a children's book um and she's uh she's she does a lot of illustrating and painting so i'm trying to get her to have some window onto that so she can learn how that actually works it's i will also be learning how it works having never done it myself but maybe she can see with me as we go through the process of you know getting the illustrator and doing all of that uh, uh that bit that's amazing i'm so happy to hear that you know i um kind of get a little frustrated with my daughter she's 15 and i i do understand what you're saying though about uh high profile a lot of people ask about my girl and um you know it, it's uh it's embarrassing, right? Like I'm the front of the stupid Calgary Pride right now. And I even told them like, are you sure you want someone straight and cis being the face? And they're like, no, it's fine. We want the allies, whatever. And I'm like, okay. So, but anyway, we already talked. My girl's probably not going to march with me. And I don't blame <laughs> her. Who wants to march with their mom, especially straight cis mom, <laughs> right? So I get it. I get that, you know, how hard it is on our kids. But, you know, I had a guest not too long ago tell me, you know, there's under a million of us registered anymore as Indigenous people. So our voices are getting a lot smaller. Obviously, on DRIP and our inherent rights need to be pushed harder and, and further. But I mean, it's been over a year with my daughter trying to get uh, her status under S3 too. So mm. it's, uh, you know, it's ongoing. And, and I feel that with you. But I'm really happy to see that you're going to be doing a second book and it's a kid's book. And one of the questions is, uh, when will it be released? Oh, oh, I have no idea. Uh, uh, you know, it's um, uh, the book, the process of, so this is all relatively new to me in terms of like how this works. I've spent my entire career in broadcasting in the movie business, which is very, very different than the book business. So, hey, I guess 
and I am probably not even supposed to tell you that there's a kids. <laughs> I'm sure my agent would be like, you shouldn't go to book clubs and tell them that because that's <laughs> not a thing. We release news, you know, they do the thing when they announce it or whatever. But um, I guess what I would say is like, I've written the first draft and that's in with the publisher. Uh, there will be multiple drafts because I already have ideas how I want to uh, uh, change it. Uh, and then we have to go through the whole thing of finding an illustrator and doing all of that. I've never written a kid's book before, so I wrote it the way I would think you write a kid's uh, a book. I don't know if that's the right way to do it, but the uh, you know they they took it. So I don't know, like the you know Unreconciled took four years to write. I, the bonus around this is it took me a weekend to actually just write the actual book. So that's looking up in terms of a timeline. Um, but I'm, I, we're probably still talking like minimum a year is probably about right. Cause the, even from the time you're done with the editing. So I'm trying to think for Unreconciled. It was six months between the time of like the book being finished and into Penguin and it being in, in stores so like we finished it in early uh whatever where it would have been 2021 i guess like very early january and it didn't come out till september uh so like that's the sort of lead time you're talking about and then like we'd already approved the cover like all of that had already happened so it still takes that lead time when you've actually the you've approved everything that needs to be approved so the kids book will be a new adventure but i would think minimum a year um and then i won't say anything more other than uh it uh there are hints to what it is in the grown-up book so if you've read unreconciled the children's book won't come as a big surprise although it it, it may because it's not the story most people think it will be but um yeah that's the that's and i had a blast i i hope to come you know when i they don't do book tours for kids books which is unfortunate but i had this book was so hard to write uh so hard like it, it, it the family stuff it's really was really difficult i i have never written about myself i hope to do it very sparingly in the future because it's really hard it's, it's been much easier in my experience uh, as someone who's written millions of words professionally um way harder when they're about you than virtually any other subject is easier than yourself um uh, so i i like i found writing the kids book and because it involves pictures and i am very uh, like i come from movie land so i'm very i understand everything i understand sort of goes through a uh, movie editing process in my brain in a lot of ways that actually made more sense to me than the unreconciled like that the biggest struggle with unreconciled was tone structure like getting the, the spine of it because i had you know if i if you all read the first draft which you never will thank god but <laughs> if you all did read it like it's all there like all the the book is mostly there some of the stories that have happened afterwards aren't there but mostly the book is there but it's way too academic and like in my own head. It's not like for a guy who on the radio, it's like, we're, I, you were on the radio with this uh, verbiage. 
like no one would have believed it and the structure like I didn't know how to I wanted to tell it sort of chronologically but I wanted to do it the way the book ended up which is like the start the opening of the chapter is like a chronological part of my life by the time you're at the end of the chapter we're talking about something that that informs and so that was always the idea but boy it took me a long time to wrestle that into a thing thanks to my editor and everyone helping it the kids book as i said a weekend i, I wrote every, all the descriptions of what was on the pages like the what's happening for the illustrator all the dialogue easy peasy because it played like a movie in my brain and it's much easier because as you can tell when reconciled ain't ever going to be a movie uh and, and for very good reasons and that's it now i i, I i've taken up too much time but no, uh, never no I wanted I, to show you, you something so though. Look oh, at no. all my dog ears. Like ah, it's you. almost like every second page is dog-eared. And there's some that I say, oh. like, oh, I lost 10 pounds reading this. And the reason for it is because it just it, when I know other people experience it, it just feels like, oh, what a relief. Thank God. I don't have to explain it. I'll just say on page 70 of his book, read this. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I did that throughout here actually. I talked about that and I underlined lots of different places as well. And then I added, uh, I'm, well, we haven't technically put out a book or uh, an episode since this that has included it, but I, I said right in my uh, podcast script now, I'm going to include it. If you want to understand, um, read Jesse Wente's book, Unreconciled from Pages to whatever, 180 to whatever, <laughs> all of chapter 13 at one point or something. So, um, yeah, I wanted you to know, and, and there was something uh, I, that I did actually save here, and it was about on page 70 where you talked about um, supposedly with our status card, we're supposed to get like uh, a discount on tax. Uh, yeah. I wanted you to know, I actually have never heard of that ever until I oh. went out to Ottawa. And then when they went out to Ottawa, um, it was the last day, people were like, did you know you can use your status card to not get uh, tax? I'm like, what? So I was super excited about it. So I used it like once when I was in Ottawa, but I, I've tried to push it here a few times, like uh, in Lethbridge, nobody heard about it. I just read a status of um, a friend of mine that tried to go up to the Walmart here in East Hills and went in one ear out the other. Like that is just not a thing across Canada. I mean, we talk about economic reconciliation and it's like the bare freaking minimum. They still can't do it in across all these real um uh retail places and it, it and especially like the big ones the sobeys the walmarts the you know safeways the canadian tires like canadian tire is supposed to be standard policy and yet the only person i've heard be able to get it in calgary is actually at the west um canadian tire and i think you have to hit the right person at the right time in order to get it so it, i just i wish people understood how embarrassing it is and how because you, you really articulated it well, how embarrassing and awful it is to even try to exert your rights. And it just feels like every little thing to exert your rights is an uphill battle. There's nothing in this book that I was like, it, it was just a relief to know other people experience it too, because, you know, I, I wasn't taken away from my mom. I didn't have a 60 scoop experience. I had a justice experience mm. when my white father and my um, Satudene mom divorced. And of course, everything went into my dad's favor. So I was, you know, raised in a white society, et cetera, et cetera. But 
that so that disconnect was there. It was such a shift too when I was a teen, and my poor auntie, she still reminds me of that. Um, so, oh, so there was a question about are we Canadian? Yeah. Not really. No. no. Uh, I, I mean, I think we have we have been given Canadian citizenship. Um, and that was sometimes fraught because in the olden days, sometimes if you wanted to be a citizen, you had to give up your, you had to give up your rights to, in order to be a, a citizen. Um, uh, so, like, I wouldn't, um, I, I probably would say, like, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm Canadian. I think I'm Anishinaabe, and that's sort of it. I, I do have a Canadian uh, passport, but it's so interesting you mentioned the, the status card. I mean, I think for many of us, I know I do. I have a very fraught relationship with it in that um, I think it's BS, like as a thing, and yet it was so important to me as like a kid to have it because it was like I'm Indian. Yeah, this exactly. Well, because I was already being called an Indian all the time like like that like so this was like at least a card that went well maybe it's special then to be you know in, in the way you would think in a, in a very like a kid sort of mind um and at the time i got it i remember all my cousins were the whole thing was the tax um but now they've made it more complex because there's that federal one that comes with the stamping and like the one i have is the one they give you on the res which they just like laminate like um Right, because last time I got it, I tell the story. Like I just walked in the office, and they're like, "Hey, Jesse, we'll just print you off." You know, and um, so like that one, they won't take, and they did. They they've turned me down in some stores. Um, although to be honest, I don't do it that often because it's like a hassle. I do it like last time I bought a car, I did it because <laughs> like that's a real tangible savings. Um, and and i think a lot of canadians misunderstand that and it's also at the root of why they think like we don't have to pay taxes and all these other things and of course the the misunderstanding is the reason we have this is a treaty so the reason you get to be here is so is part of it is this reciprocal bare minimum reciprocal thing but it's also because well under the reserve system we don't own the land so how like literally the entire economic system in canada is about land ownership like that's why the richest people on planets on the planet own land because that's what it's all about. Well, if you live on reserve, guess what? You don't own the land, so you can't get a loan. You can't participate in the economy. Like I was just explaining this to my son, who was talking about economic not reconciliation, talking about economic equality. Yeah, very good book. And and I said, okay, you know, I hear you, but have you thought of the fact that? You know, you to this day that's true that you can't you don't you can't get a loan on reserve land, but even beyond that, until like I think it was the fifties, we weren't allowed to hire lawyers. Until the sixties, we weren't allowed to vote in federal elections. Until the fifties, we weren't allowed to gather in groups larger than seven. Like there, like we had so many of these laws that restricted any participation in everything else that Canadians got to do to build up their wealth. And so I was explaining to my son, so imagine you have all those laws and then you sort of lift them and, and you think, do you think that is equality if you just lift them? And of course it's very, you know, even he can go, well, no, because if you haven't had that, you know, it's that metaphor of the race. Well, if you, if Canada started the race 150 years ago, but we're chained, chained at the finish line for the first hundred years, when do we catch up? Unless you have massive, um, sort of shift. And the one thing I do say uh, repeatedly, because this is how I've come to frame it, 
um, for politicians and whatnot is because, you know, there's this, I think there is a fear, right, in so much of what we're asking for in terms of returning things to us, that it will be deprivation for those who feel they have to return it. And the point I've landed on is like, look, there was an entire industrial complex built on taking this stuff away from us. Like people had whole careers to take stuff away from us. People have literally have legacy cottages that are passed down to their families because they were so good at taking away things from our communities. They got promoted. They became, uh, you know, they had all of this intergenerational wealth created by depriving us of all of these things. Can we not actually recognize that we could also create an industrial complex to give it all back? That we, that, you know, uh, that just like we built all these schools and invested to take it away, we could build schools to give it back. Like, you know, you took the language away, you could invest in giving it back. It's not like, and not, not just could you, you should invest in giving it all back. And guess what? Maybe our communities will get cottages or stuff because we work in the giving back part of it. That, like, if we want to talk about reconciliation, that to me is sort of it, right? Like, it's like, turn all the wealth and all the effort that you took to take these things away and turn it all back to giving it back to us. Let us take it back and empower us to do that. Um, and not think about it as this deprivation. Think about it. It's the same way we should be thinking about the climate crisis, which is not, sadly, and I know I'm speaking to folks in Alberta, but it's not that, like, um, well, we have to lose this thing so it's like doom. No, we have to lose this thing so we can do another thing. We just have to pivot in order, by the way, in order for us to do anything on an ongoing basis, we need to do this particular pivot. People will still get rich. If that's, if that's what everyone's worried about, people will still get rich. Like this system has a way of ensuring that. So we can just pivot and I think it's been interesting to watch on social media the, a lot of people reminding me of the big environmental thing of my youth, which was like the CFC ban, which was like, people forget because we have no memories anymore. That was a huge deal that like we banned CFCs globally, like everyone agreed we would do it. And it worked like that actually was a, the last big successful global environmental push why can't like we can do that we still put hairspray like we still have all that shit that had cfcs in it we have it all like i put the pan spray on my pan tonight like we got it all we just shifted and people still got rich those companies still exist they still they just do their business differently i i don't know why we don't have well i do know why but it would be great if we could actually just reframe, as my therapist always says, reframe these conversations because we are we are too trapped thinking that this is the only way out and we just know we can pivot and do it, do it different. Canada would be just as wealthy giving it all back. That's the you trick know, for Canada to understand. I am so with you and you talked about Alberta, you know you're talking to Alberta. Here's the thing, there is this white saviorism in Alberta, even in the so-called left progressive movements that will not allow Indigenous voices at the table. It drives me mental. If it wasn't for folks like, I don't know, um, Clayton 
uh, in the States, you know, talking about Indigenous like UNDRIP and, and land back. And so back to your point, Cynthia, um, like the Crown land is like 90% of the land. We that It's ridiculous. Like you actually- Oh, Crown land isn't real. That's no. not a real thing. No. That's not, that's, not um, that's what they call the stolen part. Uh, it's not a real, that doesn't exist. I, I don't know. That's just what they call it. Um, I'll tell you what my cousins do on crown land. They just hunt and do every goddamn thing that they've been doing for centuries on that land. And who they, you know, my cousin junior always say that the, the fishing game, like, uh, what are you going to do? Like, come, I dare you to fight us. And they never do. He's like, I'm going to shoot the moose in front of you on the land I'm not supposed to be on. Eh, what are you going to do about it? And Junior's right. Like, what are they? Because they don't do anything ever about it. Because they know Crown Land. Like, what are we? That's not a real thing. That's not a. We should stop pretending that that's a real uh, thing that exists in any way. Like, just use the two words together and think. Like, how is that? How is that a real thing? Yeah. So we shouldn't even. Uh, Land back is, is it happening in the US? I mean, I think we see some of it. It was interesting that community Elliot Lake here in Ontario near my community just gave Ganabaging, my community back, it was 14 acres or something, um, actually gave the land back to them in terms of they have control over it again. <laughs> so it is happening. And um, I think that's one of the big tricks that we have to overcome. It's, it's maybe the biggest trick of colonialism is it sort of disguises what it's sort of, you know, A, that it, it turned community into competition, which is maybe is its biggest evil thing it's done, is it totally erodes any idea of what community is and instead refocuses around capital, which is just a disaster as we are seeing in the pandemic. Um, but it also, it disguises, it makes you think that what it would, that things, it makes you always think in a zero sum game, that, that there's always profit and loss, that there can, that that is just the reality. So if someone's going to profit, someone has to lose. Uh, yeah, not, uh, not a real thing either. Uh, it's because uh, again, from natural systems, we know it's, it's circles, not one way or the other. Um, and so that's the thing, like land back makes everyone nervous, but of course land back would actually help everyone. Like that's the, that's the rub. Us getting us culture back would actually help. Yeah. It would help everyone, not just us. It would help literally everyone if that's what happened. If we got land stewardship of the land back, it would help everyone. If we got our sovereignty back, it would help everyone. These are not threats. They're only threats if we think that we have to maintain this thing, this fiction, this thing. And I, again, to go back to, and I'll end with the thing I said sort of early at the beginning, I know Kathy has one comment, but whenever I think about those sort of systems change, I think of them now. I go right back to sitting in Banff, staring at that sacred mountain, thinking that mountain laughs at us and what we're like think of all the mountains have seen or all the, the big trees have seen in their life and how they must consider us and what we're concerned about and just go, you, what are you, what are you doing? Like, uh, come on, get it together. Like, cause the mountain is laughing at us. They're like, this is nothing you've built is permanent like me. And like, why can't we discuss 
those things. And so let's think about it that way. Like when we confront systems and, and we don't think they're changeable, ask yourselves, is it a mountain? Because like, if it's not a mountain, if it's a man, even if it's a man-made mountain, movable, movable. It's only the big, those suckers you can't, yeah, no moving those. And, and, and also humble ourselves. That's the other thing colonialism needs to happen is humble ourselves to nature and understand that the reconciliation we have as people is but one part of it. The reconciliation with the land is way, way bigger. It, it will help if we reconcile with ourselves to get to that part, but also understand that mother nature is undefeated. She's won every fight anyone has ever picked with her ever in all of history. There's, she never loses, it's guaranteed. So we need to humble ourselves and realize there is no chance we win this. Like we are waging war against someone who cannot be beaten. They are, number one, they're our kin. We should be treating them like family. And number two, we cannot win this one. There is, that is why, at least from an Anishinaabe perspective, we humble ourselves because who are we kidding? It is not even a close fight. Don't, you can't do it. The, you know, in our tradition, you don't dig unless under very serious consideration, you're not supposed to dig more than two feet under the ground because the wound is so deep. And if your wound are that bad, what happens? You don't know. So the whole point is you don't, don't do that. And if you do do it, you really need to think about it. Like it would take a lot of consideration to dig that deep. We also need to do that, humble ourselves. And Canada is a wonderful place where we should be humble. Like I just took the Canada Council just took the entire board up north to Inuvik and Tuktoyuktuk and Yellowknife and all these places. Because I realized, of course, that many of them had never been that north. Almost all, I would say all of them had never been an indigenous community, except for me, of course. Um, and, you know, you want to go humble someone, go to Tuk, go stand at the edge of the ocean and look out and realize you got nothing. Yeah, you are, uh, we're, in, we're, the beauty is that we're here in, human, in humanity and that this is the gift that we need to humble ourselves in the face of that. And hopefully the board, I think they were humble because it's, it's hard when you stand on that land not to be, to go, holy crap, like this is a, if, by the way, if anyone you ever get a chance to drive the Arctic highway from Inuvik to Tuktoyuktuk, which I got to do this year, take this opportunity it's talking about being humbled you will be humbled by the that place and uh, as someone who's worked in the canadian culture sector their whole life and and has always been curious about why canada is so confused about its own cultural heritage when i would say the answer has always been out their windows that's if you ask what the first nations culture was it was the land it's where we lived and that's the defining feature of this place is all of the beauty of it outside. Just step, open the window, look outside, you're there. Kathy, I want to give you uh, time uh, to, to say the comment and then we, I should let everyone go because it's, uh, it's getting late here. Jesse, oh no, where'd Kathy go? You've been you. so given. You, during the COVID, went to my uh, podcast and now you've come to this book club. I, I can't thank you enough for how giving you've been. Uh, Kathy, go ahead. 
Um, I just forgot to talk about Avatar because I hated that movie too. It was so, it was just so <laughs> violent like and so blatant. Right? Come on, like just kill all the First Nations people. I, I couldn't even watch it. And then of course the, the woman has to fall in love with the somebody that's not of her own race. Like that was just like the topping of it. It was like, I, I stopped it at that time. But I'm well, just that's wondering... like uh, Dances with Wolves, where like it's it happens to be the one white woman in the tribe, who, by the way, is the only one who doesn't have a comb. I've always bugged me about that movie. Like everyone else perfectly groomed. Somehow she's all over the place. And they happen to find each other. So it's made up. Avatar, the, the thing, you know, because I've had people challenge me about my read of the film, which I think is uh, ridiculous. But like I would point out, look at the casting. Because he actually cast Indigenous and Black people in all the blue roles. So, like, he knew damn well what he was doing. Like, give me a break. Like, uh, yeah, and I can't believe we're going to have, I think it's two or three more of those movies. And I can't, I, I, there are a few things I can think of I wanted to see less. <laughs> than that. Like, I can't, I just watched uh, with the kids we watched uh, the new Predator movie, which is called Prey, yeah. which is a lot of blood uh, warning for those that get uh, squeamish. But um, I thought it was pretty interesting. I, I have always liked, it, it's, it's basically a remake of the original uh, film, but set pre, not quite pre-contact. Uh, contact has happened, but we're still early, I would say. It's mostly uh, French fur traders. Um, I thought it was quite, I thought it was an interesting uh, take on the, uh, the, and I like Predator. I mean, yeah. that movie came out when I was a teenager. So of course I like it. Uh, uh, but um, so yeah, I thought that was, that was good. Avatar, I have uh, yeah zero interest in Avatar. I, I am sure it will make a boatload of money and become a theme park and whatever and whatever, whatever. But um, yeah, it doesn't hold a lot of, uh, interest in me and, and tomorrow night for those that have um i can't remember what channel it's on fx or something in canada but rutherford falls second season uh starts if you like uh like comedy uh and this one's got a whole bunch of folks from up more north of the medicine line are in it this year like the cast is because we have michael now but now there's like a whole bunch tio and a bunch of other people are now in it i quite like that show very goes down easy i think reservation dogs second season is out and there's big stuff coming here. Um, there's uh, Little uh, Birds, uh, Little Bird, which is a big series shot in Winnipeg this past year. There's Bones of Crows, which was shot at West coming out. So big, we'll have our own shows to uh, indulge in uh, very shortly, which is uh, great news. So I, I can say that we heard at first Jesse's um, uh, feelings about prey. So there was two things that we got out of you out of this podcast that maybe I better uh, shut up before I, you know, get more out of you. But that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you is what you thought of Prey. And weirdly enough, my husband, um, his warehouse had the pawn scene in it. They built a whole pawn scene just to clean the weapons. <laughs> Weird. I thought it was pretty smart. Like, I thought the callbacks, I don't, and I don't want to spoil it for people, but like, for most folks of my vintage, there was a lot of callbacks, very specific scenes that relate to the original film. That's like, what's why I call it a remake. Um, 
that I thought were very smart. Like, like, you know, um, I don't expect a ton from these movies, but, and they mostly deliver not a ton. So I usually met, my expectations are met. This is one where I was like, oh, that's actually, like someone smart actually wrote this and like did put this together. Cause it's, I can't speak to the representation cause I, I'm not from the nation. It seems good. Uh, it seems the community's happy with it. I know there's a, a Comanche version, which is very super cool. And I will watch that one uh, for sure. And I, you know, I think it's, um, yeah, I think we'll see a lot more of that stuff. I think because um, it's actually mostly to be honest, I think there's two things. It's a, a lot of our young filmmakers grew up watching that stuff as, as you know, I did. And so their interests tend towards those sorts of uh, movies. But also it's very much a simple market concern, which is horror movies are the easiest films to sell globally. Because what scares people is far less culturally specific than say comedy, which is tends to be really culturally specific, right? We don't think it is. And you know, physical comedy and stuff isn't, but like, you know, like an Adam Sandler movie is gonna work in America and might not work literally anywhere else in terms of its sense of humor. Um, whereas a, like a, something terrifying like Jaws or some giant alien that's eating people, which is what this movie, like that's scary. Like you don't like it, that's that. Um, so just from a, the way the movie business works, I think we'll see a lot of indigenous horror movies because we already were seeing that pre like Predator. People are saying, oh, this, it's actually not. It's actually sort of coming midstream. We've already had a bunch of indigenous horror movies already and they think we'll just be getting more i think it also is because um we have a lot of scary stories uh i don't know if any of you have heard like inuit scary stories but this they are the scariest things i have ever heard in my life well just imagine what adults would tell children to make sure they were careful on the ice and you can let your imagination go from there we you know anishinaabe told stories about the woods Right, so everything is like, be careful of the woods because the windigo or whatever is gonna like eat you or whatever. Inuit, it's about what occurs under the ice and holy, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Don't wanna think about it, nightmare time. Someone will eventually make that movie and oh, the world is not ready for that at all. Like that will creep everyone right out. Cause they, as it was explained to me by an Anuk, they said like, well, we spend a lot of time indoors, like during the winter. So what do you, we told story, like, and it's the same true with Anishinaabe, like winter is story time. Like you go inside, you tell stories, you make babies, you do, you know, that sort of thing. And then in the spring you come out. And she said, our, you know, our season is just longer in terms of that. And so you want to get the heart pumping is how she would put it. So a lot of sex and a lot of uh, scary stuff. And uh you know, I hope to see all of those movies, both sides of that coin, um, uh, coming. So I think we will see a lot of that, uh, that stuff. And I think it would also be interesting and has proven interesting, you know, because Avatar, like, you know, whatever. But like when you have someone like Taika Waititi, and I don't love all of his movies, but, you know, it's interesting when we actually get those chances to make those big budget because I think his movies actually do read different than say James Cameron's do. And it's precisely because he comes at it from a very different 
perspective. And I'm very much looking forward. He's doing Star Wars. And Star Wars is, is a series that has needed an indigenous director since its conception. Like the, 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 the 77 movie, I mean, all my love to George, but if one of us could have directed it, it might have been better. Like, like because this is a theme that, um, you know, as I say in the book, like, you know, it's quite obvious why we connect with this material. You have a technologically driven empire out to wipe out folks who are interconnected in community and feel that there's an, an interrelated force that connects all living creatures together. Yeah. I mean, it becomes quite obvious why we might identify with a certain uh, group in this movie versus, it's interesting how Americans view themselves though, because they don't quite understand. Yeah, they don't, uh, most don't. They don't realize that, yeah, that's why you do the heraldry with the parading. You might want to clue in that that's what the film is sort of telling you on that one. And like um, what I love about the new Star Wars, and I'm going on a bit of a Star Wars rant, so I apologize at the end here, but um, I do like that that uh, the series that we're seeing, because I, I have to say the movies, I'm, you know, they're not for me anymore. I, I've accepted that they're not for me. So I don't, I'm not invested like a lot of the other fans are in like making them for me because they were, they were for me when I was three and saw it in the theater. They're still for kids who are three, right? So like adults getting overly upset about them is a, you know, we need to be chill and like accept that they never made sense. So it's okay if they still don't make sense because what are you talking about? Um, and so uh, like, again, it didn't make sense for me as a kid the moment Darth Vader's mask came off and it wasn't James Earl Jones. Like that's the moment I called BS on that whole thing. I was like, couldn't it have just been James Earl Jones? Like how, how is that a stretch that James Earl Jones would have a white son versus a thing called Jabba the Hutt? Like I, you know, I think we could have uh, jumped that bridge in uh, the early eighties. And frankly, if we had done that, I often think about that, that would have erased so much racism we find in the Star Wars fandom now if when if it had been James Earl Jones because all those people would have to shut up like like they would have to accept that that was canon like in the I wish he had done that it would have been so awesome to just have like comes off as James Earl Jones is underneath it anyway I digress the new ones I like because they're very obviously westerns but they are westerns told from our side of the things so like the Mandalorian well from my reading of the story, you've got a child that was scooped and you've got a warrior attempting to return the child to his family. So that reads as a whole indigenous thing to me. If you watch Boba Fett, the, it's played by a literal indigenous, like Boba Fett's literally made one of the most famous indigenous actors ever plays the character. And again, he's trying to forge community in a bizarre colonial outpost post on this, like, what is, like, I <laughs> love it because it's, it is finally to me, a return to sort of the roots of Star Wars, which was always a Western, because, you know, Western slash samurai movie is what, what, what was um, Lucas's influence uh, in it. And these movies feel like samurai westerns in the sort of the best way possible. And from 
our because I think Star Wars is sort of told from our perspective, right? Like it's, we are meant to be the heroes in that. And these ones return us to the heroes. There's what I found distressful about the sort of more recent ones, they make the villains too cool. And so, and which is a result of the fact that we all love Darth Vader because he was super cool. Like it was impressive, even though we knew that like, he's the big bad Indian agent. There's something like, I don't know. There's something, the black cape and the, the, they're, you know, very alluring. So it was one of those series where like the villain was the actual star of the whole show. And that confused them in the more recent show. But now we're back to the point of like, no, it's like communities scrappily trying to defend themselves against an advancing colonial rule. And yes, we should, I can't wait for our folks to actually get the tools to direct these things. Cause I think they will be even more pointed and like even more direct than these ones are, which I think are pretty direct. Like I, I don't, I don't, I haven't been following what the fan bros say about them. Cause I just don't care. But when I watch them, I'm like, this is, again, I'm sort of amazed that they're made by Disney like uh the most colonial of companies um i often i've never had the chance to ask taika like do they know like do they when when they get the scripts are they do they read them and go oh this makes sense hold or up not? hold yeah. up how often do you talk to him who taika yeah well i mean it's happened i, I, I you know i don't want to give away too many uh, Holy. uh, uh Oh, I've been in the movie business, Michelle, a very long time. You, you, you accumulate, uh, so, you know, when I met Taika, he was making shorts. Like it was, it was a million years ago and he was an up and coming filmmaker and we showed his shorts in Imaginative. And, you know, the folks that make Reservation Dogs, I knew all those, those folks from years ago. The reality is anyone of, like, it's not a big community. So if there's indigenous folks making movies at this point, I've probably met them <laughs> at the point, but um, yeah, I've never had the chance to ask him like when the Thor Ragnarok script, like when they get it, do they understand, like, do they, did they get like, because it's a big anti-colonial movie where like literally the movie ends by the colonists realizing they have to destroy the colony in order to fix the world. Like that it's, that's literally what happens at the end of it. They go, oh no, we actually have to destroy everything we've ever worked for in order to save everything. Um, do they, um, like, does Disney understand that that's what the movie is about? <laughs> like, I, like, I know in the past with other movies that I love that are big commercial movies, like Alien, for example, like the studio did not know what Alien was about like they didn't they they got it as like the surface story but they if you if you hear listen to all the interviews with the director and the like they didn't they knew what they were doing but they, they never let in the studio in terms of what they were doing i would just be interested does like disney know like when the new scripts for mandalorian come in do they know like i don't even know if there's indigenous people on the staff writing staff but it reads like almost there would have to be i don't know it's a very interesting um and and given my knowledge of Disney, which sadly, because I've been in the movie business, is quite deep, and they're not like the greatest company. Um, uh, they're quite predatory. Like they really are very colonial in their approach. Um, yeah, I just find it like just to give people an idea. Like they try to uh, copyright 
the story of Moana, which is like, you can't, you know, that's not a thing that you can uh, do. Um, so like they do that, like all the time. It's very weird. Um, not weird. It's very colonial. Uh, culturally appropriating too. Yeah, like they control, like they do weird stuff all the time, and they're they're you know. But I I would just be fascinated to know if they know, like if they understood that, like they're funding a two hundred and fifty million dollar anti capitalist anti colonial film that literally is going to, in a the most bizarre of ironies, make a billion dollars, and is directed by like a Maori guy who like is all of those things. If you ever talk to him, like you like you know. I don't know. I'd be curious. Uh, we'll never know. I don't think until maybe he writes a book or someone writes a book, but I uh, I don't know. And I will say for those Star Wars fans, just to conclude, because this has gone on way too long, but um, I did have a meeting. The last big meeting I ever had with Lucasfilm was uh, just as the sale to Disney. It wasn't public yet, but it, had, it had, um, was happening. And I had this dinner with this I don't want to give his name because he doesn't, you know, whatever. A top executive at uh, Lucasfilm. And uh, we were just talking about all, you know, Star Wars. And he had come up because we were doing, anyway, we're doing a show in the theater. And um, lovely guy. And, and he just turned to me and he said, you know, Jesse, this deal, what this deal means. I said, what? He said, there will always be Star Wars now. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, they're going to make Star Wars forever now. He's like, they will never stop. It will go on for all of time. He's like, that's going to be, they're going to make. And I was like, really? That seems, and turns out that dude knew exactly what he was talking about. Because <laughs> They have made so much Star Wars. They're going to make so much more of it. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but it's going to happen. And uh, I find that fascinating as someone who grew up watching the first three movies in theaters. And literally, if you'd asked me then, I would have thought we'll never see it again in our lives. And now it, my kids will never know a time when there hasn't been Star Wars. And that's an that's a interesting trip. But um, yeah, I enjoy it. We, we watch all the... Uh, we watched Obi-Wan quite, I even liked, I mean, yeah, it doesn't make, doesn't give up people, doesn't, none of it's going to make sense. So give up on that dream and just let it wash over you in whatever way sort of works. And I thought it went well, much better than the Marvel. I, I don't like the Marvel stuff at all anymore. Uh, uh, it's, I, on that one, and I'll leave. God, I'm talking way too much, Michelle. This is a disaster. But um, I, I, I won't shut you up because okay, I know where you're at. It's like a quarter after ten. So yeah, yeah. Late, so thank you. And you know, normally what we do is just let you talk until you're done. And you are such a like you just like to speak, and you're such a good dynamic speaker. And we're all here to listen to you. You have all these folks that are just here excited to hear every word you're saying. So and I'm I mean, not my, cutting you off. <laughs> not so we're talking about intergalactic colonialism like there's nothing better in the world than intergalactic colonialism and you know i have told the the uh, liberals especially because they're all uh, star wars fans too i've said but you realize you're the dark side you're the new world order i am the indigenous person <laughs> i'm the one they, have, they haven't uh they haven't uh again grasp that i i would ask them to watch any ceremony where like 
grand music is played and people walk up like you can quickly tell which side uh you're on but i just wanted to quickly say on the marvel universe what i find fascinating because i had such hope in it early when before it was called uh that when it was just like we're gonna make some uh superhero movies because like if you're a kid of my vintage you always dreamed that they would make superhero movies it was like why can't we have a cool batman or whatever and I find it fascinating that they have recreated the exact issue with comic books, which is if you don't start at number one, you're lost. Like you get like the, the and, and I say this, I'm looking at my stack of comic books. I'm a devoted comic book collector. I love, I've been reading comic books since I was a child when they cost like 15 cents or whatever. I love them, but they are impenetrable if you aren't a fan from the moment of one. It's the worst <laughs> aspect of the whole thing because if you sh if you want to read, take your pick, Spider Man, but it's issue one thirty eight. You're, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like you've literally like Mary Jane is probably dead already by the time you've got. I don't know what's happened, and and that's what they've done with the movies. Like I feel like I can't enter the universe. Whereas the Star Wars feels like you can just sort of go in. And they're self-contained shows that you it helps. Like my my enjoyment of them is deepened because I, I am a nerd about Star Wars. Mm -hmm. But my wife can watch them and she's so not a nerd about Star Wars. And she loves them. She like, oh, this is very, it's good storytelling. It's very she gets, you know, whenever a monster eats someone, she gets scared. But um, other than that, she's add really into point. it. I'm just gonna add to your yeah. point though. So my daughter doesn't care about star wars at all and i feel like i failed as a parent so Mandalorian <laughs> came to be and we were talking about like you know all of this backstory stuff she felt like for the first time in her life she felt invested enough to go through the movies because it again like you said mandalorian was said from an indigenous point of view so it was the first time she connected with star wars yeah i mean i i can i can certainly see that i mean my kids had no choice like there's there's no capacity for me, for you to live in our house and not see Star Wars. Like, it's just not, um, it's just not possible. I, I, the movies, they had to see it. Uh, it wasn't, they were, it was, and they, they like what's I've found gratifying is they're fans and I get to be a fan sort of like I was earlier in life through them. And because one of the challenges when you're a film critic is especially if you're a film critic who comes from it from a place of love which i did which is like i loved movies if i was to be honest with anyone else who loved movies i would probably advise against becoming a film critic because or working in the industry because you it's a great way to fall out of love with the thing that got you in in the first place so like because when i was a film critic uh and i was one for about 20 years like through that stretch between programming film festivals and the film criticism job, I was watching about 1500 movies a year. So when you watch 1500 movies a year, you watch mostly bad movies. Because uh, uh, that's just the reality of 1500 movies. And um, that grinds you down a bit. And then I would say the other big grind is I switched like I, because I, for me, and I described this in the book, like, Criticism was great. It meant I was doing something I, I was passionate about, but I was unsatisfied in that, like, as a critic, you only get to review the movies that get made. 
you don't really have a lot to say about what gets made. You just have to live with it and review it. Um, and I wasn't thrilled with the movies. Like after a while you go, there could be better movies. Like uh, we don't have to have these bad ones. And so I became a programmer because as a curator, then you're starting to choose which movies people of them, you get to select which ones sort of have a life. And now I eventually ended up starting a funding agency where literally you're giving money before the movie ever gets made to, to help determine those, those things. And um, uh, I think that like I got, I gained back some of my love at the same time uh, you know, I will admit I'm a bit tired um, in terms of the sector. Uh, I could use a break and I, and, you know, yeah, I won't say more about that, but um, it's, it's an industry. It's, it's a long stretch I've had in the, the industry and, um, and uh, hopefully I've left it better than when I entered it, uh, I guess, is, or I will leave it. I should say not, I've left it yet, but when I, when I do leave it, I hope it'll be a little bit, uh, better, um, uh, but it it when you get to know it's well, like with anything, right? Like what's that old saying about the sausage factory? Like when you see what the sausage, how the sausage is made, maybe you don't want to eat it. It's the same with the movie business, right? Mm -hmm. If you if you've seen, you get to see too much, and you start to, and you know too many people, and it becomes hard to watch the movies for what they are, because like you're instead you're watching it going. Yeah, but that guy is such a jerk, and this person, that, and that. Oh, and yeah, I remember this whole disaster that occurred on the set. And oh, look, they just cut that scene out as if that person never, like, it becomes too labored. And so I, I hope in my life I will regain at some point some of the distance that allowed um, the love to be sort of more freely um, there. Because I still love movies. I'm just not sure I'm in love with them at the moment in the same way that I uh, used to be. And I, you know, if you could see my room, you're sitting in a room with a giant home theater set up and 4,000 DVDs on the wall. It's clearly a room by someone who's desperately in love with movies, but I don't, um, the state of the current industry gives me a lot of pause, I guess is what I would say. And, and I do, one of my hopes is that by injecting our folks more fully into it, that will actually bring about some of the change I'm looking for. That's always been the hope. Don't know if that will necessarily, but I think, you know, I think our folks are producing very interesting work. And so there's, there's a chance. And plus, I think that will also bring, hopefully also bring about a cultural change in the sector, which is also desperately needed because way too many people are harmed and just don't need to be. And that's true of every, literally every, all of life. We, and we just need to understand that it doesn't, movies is a particular challenge or one of it, it's not a particular challenge, but one of the reasons why is that so many of the heroes of movies were not nice people. They didn't create a good culture. Like, and I, and I say this as someone who has studied them and loved them and whatever, like Hitchcock was not nice person. Stanley Kubrick, maybe the director I've been the most close to over like not I didn't actually know him but in terms of my you know um I, I don't say he wasn't nice 
complex is maybe how I would generously describe Stanley. Like um, your love but, for him really came out in this book, and I wanted you to know that was something else that I really appreciated from you too, because I have the whole Stanley Kubrick uh, collection except for that last one with Tom Cruise, and um, I quite like that one. That one's grown on me a lot because uh, I think Stanley, the casting of that movie, sort of belies tells you the genius of Stanley. Like the dude cast Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman in a movie about a couple's relationship collapsing like the guy was a genius he was just um he was also a guy who made his actors do 140 takes yeah and when you know that there's that's not right like if we're if we're being honest and and i understand he's a precise artist and all of that i got all the time in the world for that one hundred and forty takes borders on cruelty because you're ju- you're trying to drive them nuts in order to get something specific out of them. You can't like the what he did to Shelley Duvall on like the shiny like it's not it's not good like those aren't good behaviors. But we worship these people and and so as a result, a lot of folks who enter movie making think you have to be a jerk to get ahead, and the industry tolerates jerks. Like yeah. this was what ended up really rubbing me was that because as a critic, you don't actually see a lot of that, right? You're sort of, you get invited in after the jerks have done their thing and you're like, they're all very nice to you because when you literally, as soon as you get into the actual movie business, because critics aren't actually the business proper, then their jerks are just jerky to you and it becomes, oh, that's how this is. Like I've never had more people yell at me than at the time I was in the movie business. And for no reason, like you're yelling over movies, like, like, grow up um but they but we also just tolerate it because you're like you've had this whole industry where people the top people were jerks so you tolerate it's why harvey weinstein was able to be harvey weinstein everyone knew harvey was a jerk like i've i've met harvey i've attended festivals where he's been present he was like you did not need to know him to know he was a jerk he behaved like a jerk in the shows he would behave like a jerk uh, you knew he was a, and you didn't have to know the, all the backstory. You knew that the behavior you witnessed was inappropriate. Like that shouldn't be tolerated in that way. Yet it was, yeah. it totally was like he got sweets and like the festivals all put him up. And I remember one at the movie theater, eventually it, I passed an edict finally, cause I was like broken by all of it. And I finally said, okay, enough. We're never yelling again. We never yell. It's we're in the movie business. No one is dying. If you know, if you're if you're doing brain surgery, you can yell. If you're not, if you're booking a movie theater, you don't get to yell. If anyone yells at you, meaning my staff, you immediately transfer them to me. So I will deal with the idiot yelling. And then we're gonna pay on time. We're gonna be super polite. We're just gonna be nice and happy. And if people are going to be jerks, those are people we just say, sorry, we're not booking the film or whatever. And it improved my life. I hope it improved my staff life. It meant that we didn't always get the movie, like the business sometimes pushed back on that. But it was my way of just saying like, we don't have to, because I was yelling, like that, because I was schooled, like, no, Jesse, you have to yell. Like, that's the only way it'll 
work and I'd be yelling going I feel like an ass like this isn't me I don't want to be mean I'm not that type of person it's movies I don't know why we aren't just having a love fest about movies like this is silly and yeah so I also think that injecting us and folks that have been locked out of those sectors bringing them in is yes we want the stories to change but we also want the culture to change because oh. I just don't see that's so great I've I've been with in, in indigenous theater companies and in other indigenous and you don't see the same behavior like that we see there. And so that is also very needed that we just change that. And if you want to be a jerk and direct a movie, do it, go over there and do it over there. And this is a place where it's less jerky. And, and I honestly think the movies will be better. The story I always tell to young filmmakers, I just did it this week, was like a Guillermo del Toro, who I know and am very good friends with, like Guillermo makes giant movies. He makes really good movies. And he's like one of the sweetest people you would ever meet in your life. That guy has never yelled at anything. Like he's making Pinocchio. That's the type of guy Guillermo is. And he's so thrilled just with making movies. Like he's, like he's, I have never been on set with him was just watching a kid had leading his best life. Like, like, uh, that's what you know, we need more of. But honestly, I think you feel it in the films. Yeah. His films feel like they come from love as opposed to something else. He makes movies that he doesn't care if they're commercially successful, even though they are, because he's just feeding his passion. And he's not a jerk on his sets. Taika's not a jerk on his sets. Like, there's tons of role models uh, where you could you can make great movies and you don't have to be that. And we need to model those and hold those folks up, including by the way, most of the women I've ever encountered in the film business are not the jerks. Sometimes they are, but typically not. So it's like, that would help. And it's one of the reasons why I love indigenous filmmaking community because it's mostly women that do it. And it's a much more humane space in general, not all the time, but in general, it's much more humane because it's, women are really the people who started indigenous cinema globally both here in canada and in um, new zealand and um they are still very much the ones that keep it alive so it's and i think that's why our sector our, our portion of the sector actually just is different and feels very different than the larger sector uh, you know what jesse you have been a trailblazer for indigenous people for indigenous cinema and even here, I, I am so humbled you'd be willing to come to my podcast one time, let alone come to this book club. And I hope you know uh, from the bottom of my heart, I, it, it, just, it just fills my heart that you would be willing to do this with us. So thank you. Thank you for all your time today. Well, I'm so happy you're, you tolerated my blathering. And I, I know that Shelly, I see Shelly's got a hand up. Shelly, did you want to uh, ask something? And then, and then I promise I'll shut up and I'll go let you go after evenings. Um, so hi, hi, Jesse and everyone. Um, so I have a lot of tabs too. I think I'm almost done. I'm on page 151, <laughs> but I come at it from a different ledge. I, I know I have privilege, um, but I'm also not, but I am also a autistic mid fat woman. So, um, I come at it with a lot of intersectionality in that, uh, language is a deep thing for me, uh, uh special interest. I do a lot of deep dives. I, um, the reason why this is so near and dear to my heart is 
because I can hide my disability, but I'm trying not to do that anymore because it really affects me health-wise. Um, we're all kind of in, in it together. The nuances are different. Um, and I, until I found out I was autistic two years ago, I thought I wasn't disabled enough. Like I didn't, the identity piece. I know it's different. It's very different um, because the, the forced, the, the genocide in the government is very different. Um, it, it comes back to capitalism and trying to make minorities fight within each other and fight against each other than realizing the overarching systemic problem of capitalism and colonialism that makes people or makes everybody produce. That's the, um, a product is like your worth is productivity, but instead of being your worth as a human and what you have to, to like your, your thoughts and just being a human being is enough to be offered. Um, and what you, and um, I've had some struggles, but I'm not gonna go into it, but what you said, um, and me and Michelle was trying to talk to, I got it. Michelle was trying to, cause I, I was taking things personally and, and I got it. It's that I talk about a lot of ableist stuff and people don't, if they don't even understand ableism or racism, they're not gonna understand ableism. Mm -hmm. And I was taking it personally because I feel that I'm never doing enough. But I think I have to, you know, give myself grace and say, I'm doing as much as I can with the body I have and that I can only do it and I have to give myself grace. And when people are talking, it's not always directed at me. And I think it's just because it's my own self enemy and my inner ableism that I'm not enough because I, society is just made thinking I'm not enough. And um, the imposter inner ableism that, that I've only felt, found my true identity in 2020 of being autistic. And that's a whole unpacking of itself. But the, um, it just, it makes so much sense because it's all interconnected. And thank you, Kimberly Crenshaw, for your intersectionality, because we're only going to make it if we do it all together. And the seven generations, that makes so much sense to me, because why are we only thinking about here and now in the Indigenous teaching when we should be thinking the projects for seven generations ahead? Because then that will be the environmentalism that we need, because like, how is an open coal pit in the mountains going to help seven generations ahead? It's not. And I just, that's how I think. I think uh, bottom up. So I think a lot of um, the smaller pictures and trying to connect things. So that's, I connected a lot of things of what you said in here with disability and intersectionality. And thank you for this book. Oh, Shelley. Well, thank you so much uh, for that and for sharing. I really appreciate uh, that and um, <laughs> I think disability is sort of maybe the not quite because um, but it's you know I think it's one of the last things in terms of the equity or you know we've we struggled to give that equal time um, and if, you know a we're going through sort of an event right now with the pandemic where a lot more people are going to end up with sort of ongoing health challenges and and we probably sort of have to rethink the whole label or idea of disabled quite frankly sort of moving forward in terms of how we define it because i don't think it's uh, you know that great um and then like um 
you know, for sure with, with my own, uh, you know, work in, in therapy and everything, like the big thing, and you really nailed it, which I think is the most important thing, which is A, colonialism has, colonialism has messed with everyone not just indigenous people. So everyone is conditioned by colonialism is suffering by, by it. Even those that benefit the most from it are actually still suffering from it. They just are somewhat blinded to it. So we all have to actually get our way out. And you touched on the main point, which is colonialism um, is about doing and humanity is about being. And there are and and colonialism and capitalism specifically, it only cares about the doing. So and it only cares about people when they are doing, or when they're in the window of doing. So if you're you know if you're of earning age, you know when you're monetizable under capitalism, that's when they care about you. Either other other spectrum, child or uh, adult, uh, not so much. I don't know if there's someone's got a, a loud uh, sound going. Um, oh, sorry. I was just gonna add about yeah. the disability in the film, how underrepresented people with disabilities are. Like Sia put out that music film, which was just trashed before it even pot got out and she's still putting it out. It's just, we're very underrepresented at, as well. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's cause you don't have, uh, it's one of those challenges where you don't maybe have that community as represented in the sort of storytelling infrastructure to actually tell that. I have seen some good ones. I saw a very, fascinating it was a film about a wrestler but it was all in the deaf community and the film operates as if the characters are deaf so you don't hear everything that's occurring in the film it was quite quite interesting um uh, so i think but you know if we can get to that being right that the intrinsic value of human beings is in being and that in being the however you are being is exactly correct so like all of whether it's your autistic or whatever you have i got lots of mental health uh, issues which finally i'm starting to grapple with by the way the root cause of all my mental health issues colonial awesome but that goes without that, that that's a separate issue uh, not really but it, it you know adjacent um and so like um uh, i think we just need to um get to that being part and that like the way you be is it that's it that's, you don't, that's enough. You don't have to do any more than that. And in fact, if we, I, I do this exercise because I do a lot of talking with non-Indigenous uh, groups and folks. And so one of the things I ask them is if you actually think about our world for a second and imagine if we centered, because if you think of our world, we center doing constantly. Like we've built this, we, this entire culture has built itself around us doing things, right? Like why do roads exist? for us to get to do like it's only about the doing they don't exist for us to be they exist for us to get someplace to do something right and um like i think of transit in toronto which is an ongoing nightmare for my entire life but it's entirely built not around like how the community might travel to meet one another it's entirely built around how can you get downtown to work that is all we care about it doesn't matter if you have to take a bus from like because here because that's but there's no office buildings along that route. So you bust it in. So you don't get to live like a human being, right? Or whatever. And so everything is about doing. It's why we don't, like, it's why there's a historic, like we don't invest in anymore anyway, in like perks and like spaces that don't, that we can gather where you don't have to be a consumer to gather, 
right? Like we have very few of those. Like the library in the park is like basically it. Like that's not good. And and so if we can, if we think of the world, if you think about, if you stop for a second and say, what if we actually oriented it around being, what would the world look like? And one of the first things you should immediately clue in is that it would be accessible in a way it is not right away. That's literally the first thing that pops in my head is like if we actually supported people's being every building would have a ramp every single one would have a ramp like you you would build the you would it wouldn't be possible to conceive of not having a ramp on your building you couldn't conceive of not having it accessible for people with blindness or deaf like you it wouldn't be possible and again maybe I benefit from the Anishinaabe point of view, if you've ever been in an Anishinaabe community or a feast, I also, also tell folks this, what happens? Who eats first at an Anishinaabe feast? The women, the, the, the children and the elders eat first. The, the men, the fully able-bottled men eat last, dead last. Even if you're the hunter, you eat last in Anishinaabe feast. Why is that? Well, it's actually reflective of how Anishinaabe make any decision, which is the most vulnerable people first. Who, who are they? And what is, the, what is that decision going to, how can it benefit them first? Because the thinking being, if it benefits them, the dude at the end of the line will be fine. Right? Like they're the most, they're taken care of, they're coming. So if we take care of these folks first, again, think of how our society would be reorganized. Again, accessibility, our schools and the support for children would be radically different. We would have so much to make sure they're cared for. And we would in no way treat their elders like we do in this current society, like they're not worth anything because they've stopped working, which is the silliest thing ever. And of course, our language would be different. You're exactly right, Shelley, as well. Like we would just conceive of everything differently we wouldn't allow for wealth accumulation in the way that we've allowed it because you would go well if we do that then we're not supporting the being of everyone else right we're supporting your doing is more valuable than everyone else's being and that ain't right that's not the equation it's supporting everyone's being and we would also be thinking of the moment we're in where we have this like vast technological advancement all this stuff and like, we're gonna allow technology to create mass poverty instead of creating mass wealth. And what a dumb way to go. Like if you would ask the Romans, like step out of indigenous world for a while. If you went to any Roman in ancient Rome and said, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna create machines to do all the stuff that you do with like slave labor and all the other stuff. We're gonna have machines do it, but we're gonna still have poor people. They would go, what are you talking about? Like. <laughs> You are going to have all the machines to do all this and you won't just like have sex and eat and like hang around like you won't just relax and be chilled because they were, were pretty relaxed and chilled. the slaves were but they other like, you know, and and by the way, before they toppled, they invested in parks and all sorts of community infrastructure and that's how everyone was happy. Um, it's yeah, we would we would be it's bizarre to me that in, we're not in a moment of abundance globally, where we allow if you're going to invent these goofy machines, then can they do the hard work and let us chill out 
And if we have to buy stuff, why don't you make all the wealth that the machines generate and we can use it to live? And yeah, why aren't we all chilling out? Like, it's so ridiculous. Instead, they're building robots. I saw some robot with a shotgun arrest a black person in the US this past week. I know, horrified looks. Google it. It happened. That's what they're building because their society is built around the protection of the doing and the wealth accumulation that occurs in the doing. If you were centered around being, the idea you would ever build a robot to harm anyone would be inconceivable to you, inconceivable to your that mindset. So exactly, a cheese robot broke an 11-year-old's hand. I don't even know, that's scary. I don't even know anything about a cheese robot. I'm suddenly intrigued by a cheese robot because despite my, uh, of course, historic lactose intolerance, I do enjoy the cheese, uh, much yes. to the chagrin of literally everyone. But um, uh, like I would, yeah, I just think we're, we, if we centered those things, if we shifted the framework of how we see it, we would make very different choices because I don't think we have to live like we do now. Like it's, we've decided poverty is a choice. It's a very expensive one, right? To keep people poor, it's actually way cheaper to not have poverty, but they do it because it serves the system better to have poor people. Like all of this stuff doesn't, I'll leave on this because I really should go to bed at some point, but um, I'll leave on this, which is one of the things I've learned really after the book through therapy, which is a lot of our folks, folks who come with my sort of background where you're, you're indigenous, but you, you're First Nations or whatever, but you also have non-indigenous family. And it's often been described as something called two-eyed seeing or that you have your foot in two canoes, right? This idea that we navigate the world through, we're able to have two lenses. I don't think that's true anymore. And I, I bought into it for a long time. I don't think that's true. Because I think when I look back on my life, I think a lot of the moments of confusion or misunderstanding are because I don't have two I'd seen. I'm Anishinaabe. So I see the world as an Anishinaabe person. I can't help it. It's the way I am. I have to, one of the lessons about being on Ojibwe enough from one of my elders was you have to actually just accept that you just are Ojibwe and get over it. Like you are an Ojibwe, everything you do is Ojibwe. You are what it is to be Ojibwe, get over yourself. It's just the reality. So I was like, gotcha. And, and um, so I don't think I have two white seen. I think instead what I've been given is a pair of colonial prescription glasses. And I can put them on when I need to, to be able to understand and see and navigate those spaces and that worldview that, or actually that world sense. There was a, a African woman philosopher. I look up her name. I reference this all the time now. And she says, we shouldn't use worldview because it's ableist and it's actually colonial. World sense is much better because indigenous people didn't just rely on vision. Uh, we rely on all the senses. So world sense, um, you know, that, uh, that I don't, that I can put these glasses on and I can see and operate. I can go sit as chair of a crown corporation, a bizarre a sentence to even utter, and I can make sense of it and do the work that is necessary and what I think is right. But when I leave those spaces, I can take them off. And when I take them off, I don't see the world. I see the world as an Anishinaabe. And I, it's very confusing. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's a bit scary. And I don't 
know why humans would make decisions that seem so counter to humans. Uh, I don't know why we have systems that we are beholden to instead of are beholden to us. Like, why would we have a financial system that requires us to behave this way? Why wouldn't we have a financial system to serve us, not it? Why would we have any of these systems that serve it and not, like it not, none of it makes sense. And I realize, and sadly I had to come to this realization as a middle-aged man, but I guess better late than never. Like that is why I've felt sometimes in conflict with myself, with the outside world. It's why I was unreconciled, was because I kept believing that I somehow would be able to see two-eyed seeing, and I can't. I, I, I just can't. I can put on my glasses and I can navigate the world, but when I take them off, I'm just an Anishinaabe father and dad. I just see the world the way my ancestors probably would see the world right now, thinking the way. And I didn't grow up in my culture in that way, but I'm, and I'm often confused about why and how I know certain things and why I. But it's all been explained to me. It's because I'm Ojibwe and it just is what it is. So like whatever it's blood memory or whatever people want to think about it, whatever. But it is just the way I've always seen the world. Even when I was that little kid on the baseball diamond that I described in the opening of the book, I was an Anishinaabe kid wearing a pair of colonial glasses. I just didn't know it yet. I didn't know it yet. And that's why I've had those feelings. It's why imposter syndrome all of these things, and they still make pop up every once in a while. And now I remind myself, it's just the glasses. It's just the glasses. It's not anything that is actually a part of me. And so on the two-eyed scene, and I'd say this to anyone who's also in my situation where you have that mixed background, it's like, it's okay to accept that you don't actually have that capacity, that in fact, you can't see the world. I can't see the world the way my dad's family probably does. I just can't. And it causes some friction and some misunderstanding. Thankfully, they've, I think, mostly all read the book and understand much better. Even my aunt, who used to write horrible things in the Globe and Mail, has had a bit of an epiphany uh, thanks to the book. And, and so it's, you know, um, and I think they understand, like, why maybe... I've had difficulty with them because I don't see the world in the same way. I see it the way I see it. And so, yeah, so I would encourage anyone who my cousins out there who may have those similar feelings. It's just the glasses. Take them, take a deep breath. Okay. Know that you are who you are and that that is the most valuable thing that you can be is who you are unabashedly. And if, no matter how you are, the way you are, whether it's like with me, mental health. Yeah, I'm a, I, I would call myself a large mammal in terms of my uh, you know, presence, very large mammal. Um, that's who I am. And I've, I've really come to try to accept that. And it's so hard and I wish we could do it as kids. And sometimes I see other people who have managed to do that. And I've been awe of them, but that ain't me. It took me a long time. And Shelly, I hope, I hope you feel that same thing. And just know that that is, colonialism does that trick to literally everyone. It sort of puts you outside of yourself. And the most, I'll leave on this, and I promise, Michelle, I am leaving on this. 
the most important decolonial work anyone can do is right here with yourself. You, in fact, you can't do the work outside of you until you've done this part. And the biggest part of that is to go into yourself and do exactly what Shelley's talking about, which is accept yourself, realize that you are so totally enough, just as you are. You doing anything doesn't make you more or less of enough. That's what you would do. Who you be is the, the central part of it. And live your life like that. And I'm trying, I don't always succeed, but I'm trying to be present in that way and, and not wrapped up in my head and not always. And, you know, if we all can work on ourselves, it's the best thing we can do for each other is to actually do this and then meet in that healed space because we all have to heal from colonialism. And once we heal, meet in a very human way. Because again, I find it interesting for a lot of non-Indigenous people don't realize this, but like most Indigenous nations, you know what their names actually mean in their language? It means the people. For the vast majority of us, it's just the people because it's just meant to differentiate us from us, from our, our animal kin and the rest of the world. We're not, you know, it's not, it's the people. And if we could all meet again as people, as human beings, and actually understand that, that, that we're sharing an experience, and it's a human one, it's shared across our species, not, not divided by nationality or all these things we've created. It's actually the human experience, right? The fact that we dream the way we do, that we tell stories the way that we do, that we that's all us, that's original to us. Wolves don't do this. The, the hawk doesn't sit and tell stories. And the hawk, by the way, also doesn't wonder if it's being too much of a hawk or if it's enough of a <laughs> right? It's the, the hawk knows fully well what it is. The wolf has never doubted. The wolf has never thought, maybe I'm a coyote, never. It always knows it's a wolf. It's our big brain that does this. And part of it also is humbling that our big brain ain't that big. It's not that smart. Right, that that all of that we have built, that it allows us to build, all the amount of environment it allows us to shape, isn't a testament to our strength. It's a testament to our weakness and our vulnerability. The fact the wolf doesn't need a home, doesn't build a bike highway for itself, a grocery store to eat. When have you seen a wolf need a grocery store? It's fine. It doesn't. We need it because we're the weakest. Right? We're the weakest of the animals, so we actually need the most. But our brains make us think we're the top one, when in fact it's the other way. And if we actually understood that, and if we understood that the being is the thing, not the doing, because you think the wolf cares about the doing, the magic of the wolf is that while it's doing, it is being. That's the trick. That's the real trick, is that when the wolf is doing the wolf, it's being the wolf. We as animals are separate. We treat these things as somehow separate. And as Anishinaabe, right, there's mind, body, spirit. This is all that we do the medicine wheel. This is all the same thing, which is it's all within us. We need to heal ourselves. That will allow us to heal each other and heal the, these things. Allow us to confront these systems as humans with eye, human eyes, not with system eyes not with conditioned eyes. So we can actually be blunt about what needs to be done because we do have to say just blunt things now where we say, we can't do that anymore. We can't, and we, and so that's the, the, the big trick is 
all of us, and I would encourage you, and it took me therapy. Like I'm, I don't want to preach that I somehow did this on my own. It was major therapy. It was done with an Anishinaabe therapist. So that was a big help. And my status card pay for it. The best thing the status card has ever done in my life. If you, if people don't know, you can get free therapy through your status card. They should pay. They damn right. They should pay for our therapy in the, with the status card. So everyone should go do that. It really is the best thing I ever did. Literally saved my life. I really mean that last year was a very dark year for me and saved my life. And the big part of it, that when I think about all that therapy, it was about, it is the, the most decolonial work I've ever done. And you're talking to a guy who's worked in colonial systems and is working to change them. That is let, pales into the work I've done on my own ability to understand my own position and, and where I am. And it's made the work I do outside so much better. It's made me understand what the indigenous screen office is so much better because of that. So I'd encourage everyone, including all you non-Indigenous folks who are on this call, to do the same work, that you have also been conditioned to understand the world by colonialism. And that is not your inheritance to carry. It just isn't. You can also figure out, it doesn't have to be like this. And boy, I wish we could all do that a boy wish we could just assemble a society that was about do no harm like we actually apply that principle like to everything because we do so much harm all the time now and if we centered human humanity and what it is to be human and our experience on this planet i i i think this can still be paradise i honestly do believe that i mean Hey, my community's on the North Shore of Lake Huron. If you've ever been there, it is paradise. Like, it is unbelievable. It, I get why my ancestors stopped there and didn't keep going to Florida. I'm not always not angry with them. Sometimes I'm very mad at them in January because we could have gone to Florida and they chose to stop. But, uh, you know, I don't blame them. It's an extraordinary place. I, all of our ancestors where they stopped in, in this place, you can tell. Like, I was in the Okanagan and with a very chatty driver and all I, he was talking all naming all these places and I said I don't know what these names are but I know this is a sacred place I don't need to know I can just see it and know that this is people have prayed here to this place like that's what this place is and that is Canada like people have prayed to every part of it because it is ma ma majestic and magical and so I do I do still have call me a uh, naive or whatever but i still hold out hope that we can have paradise here and it it lies in us recognizing and accepting our own humanity like being comfortable with it and that would free us up to accept everyone else's and realize why are we talking about what gen like who cares what gender people want to identify with are they human that's what matters i don't care what pronouns they use i don't care what mental health or whatever your health, it's human, it's you, I love it. That's where I wanna be. I love everyone the way they are, just as they come. I, I hope we can all love each other in that same way. And if we, uh, the, I guess I, I really want us, I want our dreams to dance again. Uh, I don't know if, I hope they haven't forgotten how to do that because of colonialism.
but there was a time our dreams danced together. We could envision a world. And I hope we haven't forgotten because now's the time to, to dream again and to have those dances. It's why telling each other stories is so important because that's how those dreams dance together, right? I tell you the way I see the world, you tell me the way you see the world and somewhere we can come up with something. And um, to me, that's, if I can get to the place where I can get back to imagining, and I have to say, I'm there. I, the, what I, I can see how things can turn out different. And so I, I hope we can all get there and uh, celebrate each other in the most human of ways. And so I want to say, Miigwech, 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 Chi Miigwech, where I say it, thank you four times for all four directions. I want to thank uh, everyone on this call for sharing so deeply. I'm very sorry I talked so long. Michelle should have warned you that I, 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 I do rattle on. The book is short. I know, shocking given my verbiage. But the, the audio book they were worried was going to be like 14 hours long. But, uh, <laughs> but um, I really appreciate the people reading the book and the responses. It's so gratifying uh, to hear it. I love the fact that people bring themselves. When you're an artist, the best you can hope for is that people bring themselves to your art and find something of themselves in it. And it's so gratifying to hear that that's worked for, for people. And yeah, uh, I hope you have a great day. And I um, thank you again and, and all the love and uh, everything to everyone. So miigwech. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you for coming. I can't thank you enough. I, I say Masi Cho in, in my language. Masi Cho, Masi Cho, Masi Cho for coming and giving us so much of your time. And everybody stayed, so I wasn't cutting you off. No way. <laughs> Next you time for on Native Calgarian, when I asked Jesse his, his thoughts on TikTok. Until then. <laughs> That's a whole other hour. Michelle. Right? <laughs> Right on. Thanks, Jesse, for coming. Thank you all. Take care. What an honor. Holy. I can't believe you just spent all that time with us. So I know it's later than normal, but I wasn't cutting them off. No way. So thank you all for coming. You can all unmute yourself and say what you want to say. And, uh, you know, I apologize for being late, but I, I don't apologize that Jesse, um, spoke as much as he did because it was such an honor and a pleasure so I see you're unmuted Carol and Carrie and Marnie and uh, Cynthia and Shelly so yeah Just thank you all say for thank you well, no, we never got a chance to really meet but thanks thank for you. coming thank, thank you. you shukran in my Arabic thank language that thank is you shukran. and thank you all for your great comments in the in the comments section too I really appreciate it and I would like to say our next Settlers Book Club, we are reading Braiding Sweetgrass. And Settlers that will Book be Club? Settlers Book Club, yep. When is that happening? I might want to join. September 26th is the next date. I will put it in the chat. You can visit uh, the website and get all the info. And Is it still through me. the library, Kat? Nope, no, it would never, nope. <laughs> I, uh, they seem very restrictive. Yeah. So anyway. Okay, good. Thank dot, you. Dot com. So I will say, I will see if I can join that because I'm already busy with Native Calgarians Book Club. So I'll see That's if I can fine. make time for it.
Good. That's great. And Michelle's next book club uh, is about the, um, go ahead, chapters five and six of the MIWG. Okay, thank you so much for creating this space it's really thank you really yeah, I agree. i'm so glad i could be here today thank you thank you thank you for offering me to the book book club i really appreciate it absolutely all right folks good night everybody thanks, thanks, thanks michelle michelle much appreciated all right so for folks who um uh, obviously can't read our comments because you are just listening on our podcast. Most of the comments were, thank you for coming. I love the book. Um, there was an interesting conversation that kind of happened that, that actually isn't relevant for the book club. Uh, but lots of folks who even messaged me to say thank you. I think this one's important. Jesse, um, thank you, Jesse. Your words and honesty are greatly appreciated. Many Canadians know very little about Indigenous life and experiences. So for folks who are still on, I can't actually see you. If you wouldn't mind muting yourself, that would be great as I finish off my podcast. Um, so one of the folks said, uh, thank you, Jesse. Your words and honesty are greatly appreciated. Many Canadians know very little about Indigenous life and experiences. Your book has a strong voice and is important for all Canadian settlers to hear. Thank you for taking the time and thank you, Michelle. Um, but lots of lots of conversation, just basically saying thank you. And normally our book clubs are not this long. So what I will likely do is um, put this book club into two parts so that folks can um, listen to it in, a, in an appropriate segment. And uh, I'll of course end by saying uh, my exit. And my exit is just coming up here. All right. So some folks, some things that I didn't say uh, that I normally say in, in the intro is that uh, it's really important land acknowledgements have meaning. I encourage all to introduce themselves with their acknowledgement of their ancestors, stories of displacement and how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, a citizen of Canada, a refugee or other land displacement. So we as indigenous people know how safe you are to be around. If you don't know how to pronounce your local indigenous nation's name, won't say your pronouns, won't say your story of origin, won't acknowledge stolen lands, won't acknowledge imposed economic oppression or your role in reconciliation, I determine how safe you are to be around for my community, my family and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is indigenous 101 because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. That's why settlers and those who call themselves native Calgarians or whatever town you're from, show me that you have no indigenous 101 understanding. Jesse Winty's book on Reconciled chapter 13 and pages 180 to 181 explain it perfectly. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. My people wore rabbit skin, so it's been referred to as the land of the hair people. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Klincho Tene Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many big dog town, named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slady Dene or Satu Dene, 
So my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yolanda's Dene. Through my father, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having a Canadian Indian Act imposed status card, which is a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous peoples' inherent rights, Indigenous Two-Spirit or the Indigenous 2S LGBTQ plus community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socioeconomic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed poverty, racism, gender violence, and land theft, which I feel Jesse just explained quite well. As a Dene woman who has attempted to run after joining harmful colonial parties, spent money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just to vote on incomplete policies that still allow incarceration, the denial of justice, denial of mental health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples, I have worked to continue, reports to advocate for, and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I can't say have a great pride when I know that my community is dying from current drug policies and systems of imposed Christian-based uh, drug policies, abstinence programming, private health care, and private justice systems built, built on racism, land theft, and imposed British constructs that continue genocide on Indigenous people. I think a lot about a lot of the folks that I've mentioned just recently this year, from Frank Young to former Liberal candidate um, Don Dumont Walker. She has been found, as well as her son, uh, Vinnie Jansen. But now, unfortunately, we have a whole new legal battle that is ridiculous and disappointing and shows us exactly how far we still have to go. As for folks who don't know, there's something called the J Treaty, which is supposed to allow Indigenous people to cross the international border. And with um, the Royal Commission on or the um, RCMP and the Saskatoon Police with a long history of being abusive to Indigenous women, now she's forced to fight a legal battle. So please follow her and please follow that and, and continue your work as a settler. Uh, the police claim that uh, there's no foul play suspected, but anyway, I think of them today. I think, of, I hope we honor their lives. I hope you see your role in the importance of stopping harm and as a citizen see your role in reconciliation. I honor the Blackfoot elders and members as they've been kind to me on my Red Road journey. Coincidentally, um, Elder Red Crane, it's his birthday today, happy birthday. Uh, he taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Satudene. And truthfully, that's just our name, but we say spirit name to try to help Canadians understand a cultural teaching that I'm not willing to teach you because you've already stolen too much from us. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and Dene elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I don't speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share what I uh, know as I walk down my red road. I've been accused of not being kind while surviving genocide, that I've given free book clubs, podcasts, and info on my social media for years as have so many other of the Indigenous community. At this point, it is willful to be ignorant on these issues of oppression dynamics. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. 
If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or questions. Also, giving a review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. I'm so grateful for Jesse to be on my show. I really encourage folks to um, look at their year coming up because a lot of folks plan September until the end of the school year. And I ask you to look into a local Indigenous book club. You're welcome to join mine. Uh, but as you've seen, I prefer Indigenous people speak first because non-Indigenous have stolen the um, time that we have ever gotten with ourselves. We have less than a million of us registered and yet non-Indigenous still take up all the space. So I ask that, um, you know, you consider your place in all of this, but do try to learn. Um, push your companies on anti-oppressive training, anti-racism training, and Indigenous education. Challenge your community associations, your uh, sports clubs, whatever, whatever it is you spend your free time on. I don't see land acknowledgements in emails. I know you have absolutely zero Indigenous training. So if you are interested, anybody is welcome to join my book club. My hope is, is that you will make space for Indigenous people and respect that. So September 12th, we have the National Inquiries, chapters five and six from volume, uh, volumes uh, 1A. And then on October 10th, we have Res Rules by Clarence Louie. On November 14th, we have the National Inquiry, chapter seven and eight. And then on December 12th, we have Standoff by Bruce McIver. Another thing that um, I'm really proud to be a part of is something called the Reconciliation Action Group. We have many settlers that actually do the work there. I mean, you've seen Kat from our settler book club. So if there is another book club, I'd encourage you to consider, it would be the settlers book club or start one in your own. If you're a teacher, you know, have a Friday um, lunch that is devoted to a book you all read and uh, go from there. I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety and cultural first aid in all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. I wanna say thank you to authors, Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch and Alicia Fridkin of heretohelp.dc.ca about their piece on what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. Their work are those cultural action tools that I have said hundreds of times in my podcast so please support Indigenous work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding. I'm just lucky enough to repeat and highlight them here. Internalized racism or lateral violence, it's a form of oppression dynamics that those who are on the bottom of the oppression dynamic ladder experience. It's another form of violence um, that have been imposed on these lands. And if you go to racialequitytools.org, uh, Donna Bevins has created What is Internalized Racism? There's so many resource files there. I highly encourage them if you come from an oppressed group to go through them to try to understand the intersectionalities of uh, oppression that you are experiencing. Do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends Service Committee. If you see or experience racism, you can go to this and this will help you understand how to do um, 
you know, different interventions that help everybody. So you go to afsc.org. They have a resource area and it says do's and don'ts for bystander intervention. Literally, if you Google it, there's tons of resources out there. If you see or experience racism in, in Alberta, report it to acttoendracism.ca. You can actually text at 587-507-3838. Indigenous have been sharing and talking about the issues or traumas in reports, commissions, and in public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, um, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, Indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform and violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational and health and justice institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. They don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism. They have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, etc. And actually, I feel Jesse spoke about it really well about how poverty is a choice. A really great article I said out loud is uh, Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. If you literally Google it, you will find oodles and oodles of resources. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about and want to talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also, they, if you go onto their website, they have a text option. So you go to hopeforwellness.ca. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413. 6649. It is also a toll free 24 7 crisis call line. Uh, non Indigenous, there are usually distress centers lines in your area, possibly a functioning 211, or you can call 833 456 4566. In Alberta, we have a 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta. You can go to ssisa.ca. Uh, we actually here locally are going to be having an event in October um, to honor one of my uh, colleagues dreams. Actually, she uh, is a 60 scooper and she is going to be having an event. It's going to be on a Sunday here in Calgary. And I want to say it's the October 16th. So look for the poster. We'll send it out here shortly. And uh, there's a group of us from the committee that are super excited to talk about it. It's called Healing Our Spirits. So another event I hope you all consider joining. Uh, before that will be the Sisters in Spirit Vigil on October 4th. Before that will be um, the National Day on Truth and Reconciliation, which will be September 30th. And we also have uh, Calgary Pride coming up on September 4th. 
which I'm super excited about. So uh, the following are two SLGBTQ2 plus supports available in most areas across Canada. If you're in crisis, please go to lifevoice.ca. Uh, there's a trans lifeline in Canada at 877-330-6366. And the Trevor Project's LGBTQ youth line is 866-466-7386. And of course, go to lifevoice.ca and get some more crisis supports if those um, aren't applying to you. It is really important that folks understand and Jesse said it again in the topic about poverty. It is important to understand that if you know someone that is using substances to not use alone, if you are using alone, you can contact the National Overdose Response Service at 1-888-688-NORS for support. And there's two apps you can also download called Brave or DORS. So please consider that we have more drug poisonings, the uh, statistics that just came out, unfortunately, and every death is completely preventable. Violence is my everyday reality. Every indigenous, indigenous generation has faced it. This podcast is self-care, how I take my power and my voice back, how I reclaim my space. I just like to speak freely without interruption, tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting questions, and I think Jesse's book Unreconciled really shows all of these things. Um, it is unacceptable anymore. Learn about being trauma-informed. Folks like me are dealing with internalized racism and gatekeeping and folks that survive off the status quo who are really in their trauma. Understanding internal and external racism is an everyday reality for me, Indigenous people, folks with disabilities and the QT BIPOC community, everyone. Masi Cho to my ancestors, to my granny, to my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be blunt and strong, my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots, and stepping up, teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. My husband, Big Buffalo Rock Man, for producing and editing the show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, father of our child and support down my journey of the red road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child thunderpipe necklace woman who we are blessed to learn from daily. I'm honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. My hope is my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they'll understand down the road. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcast, pin posts on social media, and if you'd like me to come and speak to your company on Indigenous education. And I like to end by giving side-eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin responded, or you'd be in my dish. Thank you, everybody, for being a part of today's book club and for being a part of this show. All the best, Masi Cho.